and they are many. I've seen the devil, and he is me. I've seen the runtime of this episode, and that's a lot of talking for just one movie. But it's a movie directed by Mike Flanagan, and he is our favorite human. This episode's been a long time in the making, and we hope you enjoy it. It's Oculus on this bonus episode of Scary Stuff. Welcome to this bonus episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Leamy. Hello, everyone. And Jacob Jones-Goldstein. I'm glad to be back in Fairhope, Alabama. Hey. And we mentioned it briefly back at the end of episode 13, but we have someone we haven't had on the podcast before. Now, technically, you've heard her voice before because she was gracious enough to do the intro for episode 7, but now she's going to talk about a whole movie with us, which would be Shots to Shots. It's me! I'm here! Hi, team! Hi, Shasta! Hey. <laughs> Welcome! Thanks for coming on! Thank you for I'm doing so this! I'm so happy! <laughs> I'm glad someone's happy. We'll see how you feel at the end. <laughs> <laughs> see, way back I was hoping you were going to be like our very first guest on the pod. Like, it ended up being Fred, <laughs> but uh, I was hoping it would be you just so I could do the, like the Andre the Giant bit from Princess Bride. Right now the three of us, I thought there could be four of us if we ever find a lady. Hello, lady. <laughs> Beautiful. That's I love it. my favorite line from that entire movie. It's so good. <sighs> Eric, you did something right for a change. Don't worry, I will let it go to my head. <laughs> that wouldn't be sportsmanlike. <laughs> I don't even exercise. <laughs> that line's especially apt for me. <laughs> I don't even exercise. I think that's apt for everybody right now. Uh, yes, that is correct. Well, speaking of physical activity, at least, yes. Yeah, so this is our bonus episode spinning off of episode 13, which was our professional wrestling episode. And like I briefly mentioned in that, this is the, the long-lost Mike Flanagan movie that I pulled out of episode four because I wanted dibs on it, knowing I was doing this topic. Specifically because this movie was produced by WWE Studios, among like 10 other production companies, but it's one of them, so it counts. And there is a wrestling <laughs> reference in the movie, which I'd forgotten about until I was rewatching it for this. It's, I believe so, it's unintentional, though, because they I didn't... was curious about that, because they pronounce it wrong. Yes, and you can get into it when you get to it, but the long and short of it is that WWE Studios actually hopped into this project, like, after almost all of it was done. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So they hopped in towards the end. So they had very little involvement or effect on script or what was produced. Because if they had, it would have been a lot, lot worse. <laughs> Instead, we got a good movie. Because that's why I didn't see this initially. So I saw Oculus when it first hit DVD. And when the trailers for it were running, no joke, it started and it said, WWE Studios, and I said, nope, and just checked out. Because the last one we reviewed, See No Evil, was like their third one. That was 2005. This is 2013, 2014, when it was actually released. Mm -hmm. So it was a long, long history of nope with WWE Studios movies, where I knew there was no chance. And then I kept seeing reviews that are like, I'll be damned, it's actually good. Bullshit. And I checked it out when it was like, holy shit, it's actually good. 
It almost feels like they put their money into this production just so they could have their name on it. Like, we need a good one, damn it. We don't care. It's almost done. Who cares? Who gives a shit? Just put our damn name on it. (laughs) (laughs) But it actually ends up being incredibly appropriate because evil mirrors have a weird connection where they keep coming up in the history of wrestling. Like, just from time to time. I'm sorry, what? Rollback. What? (laughs) Really? Yes, every now and then. Like, the the most famous one is probably the Hulk Hogan Ultimate Warrior spot from Warrior's Brief Run in WCW, where Hogan goes into his dressing room, and there's a one-way mirror, and Warrior's standing through it, and the gimmick is that Hogan can see Warrior, but no one else can. He's like, can't you see him, brother? He's right there, brother. And Warrior just, ah, the whole time. And Bischoff says, what are you talking about? I don't see anybody. So there's that. Sasha Banks, so I talked before in episode 13 about NXT, they used to turn their wrestlers heel by having them look in the mirror. Like Sasha Banks, who's had a great year this year in WWE, she was a face until, you know, she had a loss and Summer Rae said, you know, you need to reevaluate yourself. And she took a long, hard look in that mirror. And then next week she came out, she was heel. Then about a year later, she did the same thing to Becky Lynch. Had a loss, you got to look in the mirror. And they have these long shots of people looking in the mirror. Next week, heel. Wow. So the lasser glass <laughs> is well established in WWE continuity. It's taken on different forms, but it does exist. That's hilarious. That's, that's wild. The other thing I kept getting hung up on with this movie was, and I was like, all right, it's our long lost Mike Flanagan movie. We're doing it because of WWE Studios. So what kind of wrestler would Mike Flanagan be? He'd definitely be like a William Regal-esque ring tactician because he would have to have entirely hand-based offense because we know how much he hates hands, which comes through in this movie. So it would just all be like him and like it'd just be stomps on the hands, just hand locks. William Regal used to do this thing where he'd pull your fingers apart to expose the webbing between your ring finger and your middle oh. finger and then run that along the ropes. Oh, rude. It would all be shit like that. Like Mike Flanagan would be the first wrestler whose finishing move would be like a wrist lock. That happens early in this movie, too. Oh, Jesus Christ. Ugh, and it doesn't uh, let up. Ugh. I was thinking that going in. I was like, is this going to be pre Mike Flanagan hating hands? 20 minutes in. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> This might be the first Mike Flanagan hating hands. Yeah, I don't remember if anybody's hands get wrecked in absentia. Ah, not that I remember. (laughs) Yeah, so this might be where he found his, you know, it's like in uh, Community, periodically the Dean will see a Dalmatian because I hope this doesn't awaken anything in me. And this, it's tearing out a fingernail. It's like, uh (laughs) uh-oh. What year was absentia? 2011, off the top of my head? Something like that, yeah. It was a couple years before this. Yes, it was a couple years before this, but... The Oculus Chapter 3, The Man with the Plan, Dear that God. this is based on, <laughs> came out in 2006. Yeah, he had been shopping that for a while. Mm-hmm. So while technically Absentia came out before Oculus, I'm going to give it credit for The Man with the Plan. So it's interesting because that was his business card, as it were, to try to get into a horror movie. He's like, I'll do this little short, try to get out there, like what I'm capable of. We'll use this to get into horror films. And honestly, it worked pretty well, except he had zero interest in doing found footage. Mm -hmm. It's pretty well established that if you've been willing to do Oculus in a found footage style, that this could have been out as early as 2006. So this was delayed seven years because he wanted to do it his way. I've actually got a pretty interesting quote about that from a Den of Geek interview on the sort of the origins of that. So it's Mike Flanagan. The short film was really to try and get out there and just make something. And kind of immediately, as it got out into the festival circuit, people were enjoying it and there was interest in expanding it into a feature. But everybody wanted to do the found footage thing because there were cameras in the room. And I didn't think that worked for this story because the only thing that is really going to make it work is is if we can say 
that what you are seeing on screen isn't objective. Found footage has to be objective. You have to believe the frame. So it was really hard to find partners who were willing to do it another way. It took like seven years. We would go into meetings and show the short and people loved it. And they would always come back to that. It got really frustrating. And I would just keep putting it in a drawer. Like you said, I, I thought that was interesting. And the point about with found footage, you having to believe what you're seeing mm-hmm. is pretty accurate. And look, as a lover of found footage, this movie would have been garbage yes. if they yep. made it as found yep. footage. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, not to mention, like, so skipping ahead just a tiny bit, there is at one point in the film where footage is used to verify reality. And you can't do that if all you're seeing is footage. <laughs> it yeah. completely negates the is it or isn't it dynamic. So there's no way you could have hit that note, at least, unless you did exactly what it was done. And I think it was a good move. Yeah. And what's funny now is if he shot that, like nowadays, if he shot that short and wanted to make a film at it, nobody would bat an eye. It wouldn't be like, make it found footage. He would be like, don't make it found footage. Because <laughs> it doesn't make any money. And, if, you know, paranormal activity kind of exhausted most of that. Like, I don't think there's been a big studio found footage thing since probably Ghost Dimension, right? Well, there was the Blair Witch quasi-sequel, soft reboot. Yeah, but we don't have to acknowledge that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the found footage aspect, because that's what led Mike Flanagan to producer Trevor Macy from Intrepid Pictures. A love affair. Yeah, who has been his producer on all his projects since then. So this was one of the sad parts of me being an asshole and making a skip over it from episode four, is this is the movie that kind of established a lot of the Mike Flanagan regulars from the production side because mm-hmm. it's where trevor macy enters the picture from intrepid pictures it's where jeff howard shows up who was his co-screenwriter on this who is also had written apparently written a movie called permanent damage from 1992 which i couldn't find i'm not sure that's the same jeff howard so i'll have to find that out but he would later go on to co-write before i wake ouija 2 gerald's game wrote some hill house he has a short film called slice of heaven that he wrote which is actually on youtube if anyone wants to check that out and maybe jeff howard someday will do superman too yeah if you follow jeff howard on twitter he sent out a tweet about a superman pitch with the first paragraph of a really nifty superman pitch he had yeah jeff howard and mike flanagan it, it seems like they have constantly been put in situations where they have these really interesting takes on material which then get denied because they're too interesting for instance <laughs> they were attached to do a reboot of i know what you did last summer which Jeff Howard described as basically a high school witness for the prosecution. (laughs) And I was like, well, that sounds fucking amazing to me. But apparently the studio was like, nope, fuck that. And didn't go with it. So it's still listed as in production on his IMDb, but it sounds like it's dead in the water. I don't know how they can make Hill House and then ever get turned down for anything again. Yep. You know, just give the man what he wants. (laughs) I mean, clearly it's going to be good. Yeah, so there's Jeff Howard coming into play. There's the Newton Brothers, the Amazing Composers, Michael Feminari, the DP. These are all folks who are regulars at this point. And also Shasta in Oddity Prodigy, her specialty or one of her many specialties is amazing cosplay work. And this is where Lynn Falconer comes into play, who is the costume designer on not all of Mike Flanagan's work, but a lot of them going forward. I think specifically she's also worked on the black and white episode of Bly Manor, I believe, was also hers. Oh, man. The flashback episode with Kate Siegel. That was a good one. I know we're not talking about that one right now, but from the beginning of that one, I was like, these costumes are fantastic. (laughs) And I had a moment and I had to stop the show. And my husband's like, are you okay?" It was amazing. So, yeah, good honor. (laughs) Shasta's like, I'm great. Just got to do some sketches real quick. Make some plans. (laughs) It's also the first Fairhope movie. Yep. I'm going to keep harping on that because I think it's just fantastic that he films like half of his films in Fairhope, Alabama. And every one he talks about, you know, well, we, we had to find the right house. So we kept visiting all these houses. And I kind of think 
at some point, Mike Flanagan has been in everybody's house in Fairhope, Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> but then how do the people go back and live there? Because I wouldn't. No. <laughs> I would not. There's nope. an interesting thing about that. The family whose house he did Oculus in were really into it. They went and lived in a hotel while we were there. They thought it was cool. And then they read the script and got freaked out. Not a fucking chance, man. <laughs> and they were like, you know, when they got him back in, like they were into it, but they also asked for like a cleansing ritual after the filming. Was yes. <laughs> because whether it's a movie or not, you don't trust that shit. It's too close. You can't close your own doors. And if you do close them and they lock, you're fucked. Yeah. Nope. Like th there are a number of scenes in this that would make me queasy walking into my own house if it was shot here. That's for sure. It does not hold back. But Mike. That doesn't mean you couldn't shoot here. And I would even vacuum <laughs> or whatever. We're in Delaware. I would even vacuum. <laughs> I have crawl spaces. It's it's not Fairhope, but if you ever want to shoot in Delaware, you can use every inch of my house. I have three available crawl spaces. We are we are good to go. Nice and scary here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, since we were just talking about Bly Manor, it's something I wanted to mention to Shasta. So you recently watched Oculus and we asked you to come on this episode with us. So was your end to that? watching Blind Manor and, and Hill House and then going back to other Flanagan? Or was it Karen Gian? It was definitely Karen Gian. So Yay. Yeah, yeah. I love her so much. Of Doctor Who fame, period. Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Nothing else. I'm sure she's never done anything other than that. So <laughs> absolutely loved her. But I originally thought that this movie was about an escape room. And I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> oh, wow. And after watch, <laughs> yo, yeah. In a sense. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So after I watched it, I was like, oh, sure, sure. You tried. And that's fine. But I don't know where that comes from. And then I looked at the date for the movie release and then the DVD release. It was 2014. And I was superiorly pregnant. And then after that, a mom, again, continued momness after that. So in newborn stage, you don't sleep. Mm. You kind of mix reality and not reality. So I definitely wasn't watching horror movies at that point. Boy, but watching this one at that point would be bad. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I did that with Elsa. That was a terrible idea. The firstborn. Yeah, and it didn't work out. So when the secondborn came around, this movie came out and I was like, well, I'll get to that eventually because Karen's in it and this will be great. And then I didn't. So I recently watched it. I guess it was the summer, fall, maybe. And again, I went in thinking that this was about some convoluted escape room and I was very excited. And then it wasn't. And I kept asking Fred what the fuck is this? <laughs> and I kept watching it and it's fine. And, you know, I went back and watched it again just to make sure that I got what I got out of it. And I still like the movie, but Good. going in, I was prepared for something completely different. And it, it was quite a little ride. I have to ask, because much like going into films blind and getting like completely surprised by twists and whatnot, Going into this film expecting one thing and getting something completely different, did it improve, worsen the experience for you? What do you think? It, uh, uh, it was, <laughs> I knew what to expect if it was a horror movie about an escape room. That made complete sense. And since I was still riding that, wait, this isn't an escape room train. I mean, it kind of was for the mirror. It was. It, that's exactly <laughs> it. for the, And I like history. They put a fair amount of that into this. So that was nice. And I had a couple little surprises that endeared me, I guess, endeared <laughs> the movie for me. But it wasn't what I thought it was going in. Again, I have no idea where this idea of escape room came in. And I still loved it. The brother-sister relationship is one that I have with my own brother, mm. aside from those bits. But it was, <laughs> he hasn't tried to kill me yet. And that, <laughs> that I appreciate. But yeah, so I did like it more 
than I would have liked it because if it had been just horror escape room as my pregnant brain thought that it was, then I think I would have just walked away from it and said, oh, okay, that was exactly what I expected. So it was a nice surprise, it being completely different than what I expected. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Literally just wrote down, ask Shasta to come back for Escape Room. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's two of those now, or at least there's, if the second one's not out, it's coming out. So Before we get too far off it, just, we were talking about Karen Gian been in this, and that being a, a selling point. It was a pretty big selling point for Flanagan, too. Yep. I've got an interesting quote from an interview with the website Hey You Guys, spelled with a U, where they asked, Finally, Karen Gian is well known in the UK predominantly for her role in Doctor Who. How did she become involved in your project and were you aware of her beforehand? And it should be noted that this was her first US role. So he responded, I'm a major Whovian, actually. <gasps> so Karen was my first choice when we were writing the part. I was such a fan of the strength and confidence she brought to the Amy Pond that I thought, if we're going to have a heroine in a horror movie, We'd never think of them as a victim. You need to believe they'd walk towards the danger with a bit of a smirk on their face. And there was nobody out there who I felt was more perfect for that than Karen. It's funny because when she first read the script, she wanted to talk about it on Skype. And I was trying to play it really cool and try to excite her about coming over to America and being in this movie. And I managed to pull that off for about 10 minutes before I had a sip of coffee. And my coffee mug at work is a TARDIS. Yes. (laughs) And I had forgotten that. I have that mug. (laughs) So I'd be sitting there trying to put on a cool face and I was sipping from a TARDIS mug. The minute she saw it, she knew she had the part was in the bag. So yeah, I'm a big nerd for Doctor Who and for Battlestar Galactica. So for me, Karen and Katie Sackhoff came onto the project. It was always going to be a real challenge for me to turn the fanboy side off and get to work. But thankfully that happened. Awesome. And I, I just love that image of him thinking, you know, yes, very interesting, sipping out of a TARDIS. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because Flanagan tends to work with a lot of the same people over and over. And coming out of this, I was thinking, I was like, oh, damn it. Why wasn't Karen Gian like in everything else he did? Because right. she's so amazing. wonderful in this. Yeah. And I was reading interviews and there was an interview with her where she mentioned, oh, yeah, well, I started directing horror shorts and I was running the scripts by Mike Flanagan because we're still friends and whatnot. So he was consulting on it. I had no idea she was writing and directing stuff, but yep. she's done three horror shorts, one called Coward, which I hadn't seen. I wasn't able to find that one. There's one called Conventional. It's so good. Which is, yes, it's on YouTube. That one is it's so really good. It's really good. It has Katie Parker. Yeah. It has James Ransone, a.k.a. Deputy So-and-so. Oh, shit. And it has a score by the Newton Brothers. Oh, wow. It's, it's disturbing. It's really well done. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And then there's another one she just put out on YouTube in October of 2020 called Hoarding. We'll link to that one on our Twitter feed. She has a feature, too, called The Party's Just Beginning, which I didn't have a chance to watch. But based on the two shorts I saw, she's off to a phenomenal start as a filmmaker. That's so exciting. She's also our community connection for the episode. (laughs) So she was, of course, in Avengers Endgame which also featured Ken Jeong from Community as a security guard and was directed by the Russo brothers who directed like 40 Community episodes and produced the show. So yeah, so pretty much one step away one. So that was nice. I didn't have to do a lot of work on that. I didn't even have to look it up. I just knew that one. It was nice. Russo brothers done. Next. And Ken Jeong. And Ken, he was a security guard in Endgame. Let's, yep, let's yep, give yep. him credit where credit's due. <laughs> You know, I think this was the first Flanagan movie I saw. I was trying to remember if I saw this or Absentia first, but I'm pretty sure I saw this because I watch a lot of random horror movies late at night and Shudder 
is really good for that now, but it used to be on Netflix and this used to be on Netflix or Prime or something. I remember watching it and liking it and then not too long after that watching Absentia and Eric going, Oh yeah, Mike Flanagan did both of those. And I'm like, Who who did what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I didn't expect anything from it. Again, when I watched it, I saw the WWF logo and I was like, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> and I don't I don't inherently like stories about mirrors. Not because like I think they're bad, but because they freak me out. I don't like mirrors. I have a problem with horror movies with mirrors. Yes. Yeah. They they mess me up. Like and I and not too long after seeing this, I went and stayed at my father's place in Vermont. And I sleep, you know, on a couch in their downstairs living room, which Sounds fine. It's nice. It's cozy. Whatever. The problem is, is on either ends of the living room, there's mirrors. So when you stand up and look in any direction, you can see yourself. Not a chance. No. When you wake up in the middle of the night and you got to go to the bathroom and you know those mirrors are there nope. and you're going to be able to see like whatever light you have to get around. It's like, nah, maybe I'll just be on their couch. <laughs> Flanagan has told us not to like mirrors at all repeatedly yeah, it's no good we just don't listen i was waiting for yeah my dad has this eye condition he has these silver contact lenses so right. fuck me up. <laughs> well but if your light reflects off your eyes in these mirrors late at night you get a little bit of that effect man it's no good no nope. it's not good it's unacceptable even in this place as unscary as vermont for you maybe yeah. <laughs> fair enough I don't have an issue with mirrors, but I've mentioned in previous episodes, one thing that's creeped me out since I was a kid is just eyes gleaming in the dark. Yeah. Where it's the eyes are basically, and you get a lot <laughs> Good of that. fucking luck. So this is rough on you. One way or another, this check boxes for everybody here. So Indeed. I've got a thing when somebody opens their mouth and the wrong noise comes out, too. That is correct. Mm. Same. And there's a scene in this that, oh boy. And it just keeps happening. Which one is worse for you? People opening their mouths and cricket noises coming out or alarm clocks? Alarm clocks, because crickets aren't okay. scary. Look, I just want to get it on the record. That shit is not scary. I've never <laughs> understood it. They sound like a cricket. This a uh, uh, House of Pain lyric, where he says, "I can wake a wicked noise like a cricket," and it's a stupid line, but it's what goes through my head whenever somebody talks about how scary Grudge was. I'm like, "Come on, man!" Everlast was like, "This is bullshit," and he was right. <laughs> shit is not scary. Although Grudge is a pretty good comparison for this, because the second you enter the house, you're dead. Neither of those. Yep. <laughs> it is. It's a very yep. apt comparison. Yep. You're so fucked. This thing is way OP. <laughs> yeah. Th this movie is worse the second time you see it. Yep. Because the first time, well, that's weird. But the second time, like, you know exactly the moment that this movie is over for them. <laughs> and it's early. Yes. And then they realize it. And you have to feel it all over again. You're like, oh, no, it's roughly 24 minutes and 42 seconds into this <laughs> film and they were done. And it's like, oh, shit, man. So before we get into it, I got one last fun thing I wanted to bring up. And I was I was reading about it like I was looking up to see if anybody had come up with more on the mirror itself. And what I found is that there's a fun fan theory about Hill House because the mirror is in Hill House. When you see it, she looks. Into I was it at one wondering point. about that. OK, is Hill yes. House actually bad? The house or is it just the mirror? Because the mirror could do every fucking thing that happens in Hill House. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, it could. Gerald's game, too. It's the headboard in Gerald's game. So that's maybe right. that's all the shit she was seeing. Yep. Damn. And it, it's in the house in... It's in Before I Wake. The bad one. It's in the uh, psychiatrist's office in Before I Wake. Yep. It's in Ouija 2. It's on the walls in Ouija 2. It's in the basement. When I say the bad one, I mean the first Ouija was bad, not the second one. It was a good <laughs> movie. What I was trying to get out was that it was the good sequel to the bad movie, because I couldn't remember the name. I don't want anybody to think I didn't like Ouija 2. <laughs> I mean, we'll get into it more later, but I would definitely 
not attribute those movies to the mirror only because the mirror seems less conscious seems more bestial just like a deep-seated need to feed kind of thing but we'll get into that yeah i'm sure we'll argue about that later absolutely bell at the ready yep so as we mentioned this is written directed and edited by mike flanagan who has been known for things such as absentia before i wake hush gerald's game dr sleep and ouija origin evil all of which you can find more about on our episode four spotlight on mike flanagan (laughs) we like him just a little bit so (laughs) oh wait we didn't do the bye bye birdie thing yet did we (laughs) no we haven't all right let's get this out of the way Mike Mike Flanagan! Flanagan. He's our favorite human. Okay, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) We gotta practice the sync up on that. That was good. good. Eric will fix it in post. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'll bring a pitch pipe next time. (laughs) You mentioned this is uh, co-written with uh, Jeff Howard, who also worked with him on Gerald's Game and Ouija Origin of Evil. It's had music by the Newton Brothers, who worked on Dr. Sleep and Haunting of Bly Manor. Cinematography with Michael uh, Feminari, uh, who worked on Dr. Sleep and Haunting of Hill House. Once again, we're seeing this trend of him reusing production members to great effect. We also have it distributed by Relativity Media, who distributed House at the End of the Street, My Soul to Take, and Zombieland. Produced by Intrepid Pictures, who also worked on movies such as The Return, The Hitcher, and Bye Bye Man. Which had Doug Jones in it. Doug Jones! Produced by Micah Entertainment, LLC, which worked on Before I Wake and Lost City of Z. We mentioned the WWE series had a, a touch on this, which did Sino Evil 1 and 2 and Leprechaun Origins. <gasps> Finally, we also have the production company Bloomhouse Productions involved with this. Have they done other movies? <laughs> they worked on Freaky, <laughs> The Invisible Man, and The Hunt, which we wa- did in a previous bonus episode. So, so good. Yeah, those were all those were timely selections. I appreciate that. <laughs> and Jake is in the studio with our Totemic Funko Jason Bloom. Uh, that's true. So when Oculus begins, you get the production logos for all the studios that Nick just mentioned. And then after that, you get Mike Flanagan clearly laying claim to his position as a modern horror master because he said, you know what? John Carpenter's got dibs on the Alberta spot. I'm calling dibs on Ariel Narrow Bold. (laughs) Because all the opening credits are that. (laughs) So I had to go back and change the font for this episode artwork because I had bonus in a particular font. I said, well, now it's got to be Ariel Narrow Bold. (laughs) That is officially the Flanagan font, which I don't think is actually used in any movie after Oculus, but I'm still going to think of it as the Flanagan font. So yeah, we start with a young Kaylee with blood on her face looking through a door, played by Annalise Basso, who we talked about previously from Ouija Origin of Evil. So the uh, the older sister there. So I, I love this. So, because when you first see the eye, it, you don't see the blood. Then it cuts to the father, to um, Slater. That's not his name in this. Rory Calhoun? Rory Cochran. <laughs> Rory Cochran. I'm so bad at this game. I even have IMDb up. I just wasn't looking at it. He plays Slater in Days and Confused. So that's all yeah. I'm going to call him. Through and he plays Lucas in uh, Empire Records. Yeah, but that's not as important as playing Slater in Dazed and Confused. Incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) Incorrect. I will drive to your house. We'll have a fight in a pandemic. But they they cut to him walking around with a gun and then they cut back and you see the blood. And I just I just think it's such a good opening couple of shots and just the way to open the movie. And he's Flanagan is such a good editor, too, that these movies are always so well edited and sliced together. I just I just I really think it's a cool opener worth noting on that so i i read a draft of the script for this uh, this was a draft dated december 15 2011 
There's not a huge amount of stuff to talk about, just a couple bits and pieces. But one thing I'll mention is the opening shot was originally different. There was one shot before the shot you just mentioned, the shot that actually opens the finished film. So it originally begins, We float through the Russell home, formerly an elegant colonial with a smattering of upscale classical pieces, now a dark, unkempt mess. Moving from the entry through the living room and into a hallway leading down to a private office, we catch glimpses of broken glass from the frame of a fallen family portrait that shows Alan, 40s, handsome, his wife Marie, 30s, sweetly beautiful, and their two children, little Kaylee, 13, and little Tim, 10. Further along, we find streaks and splatters of blood along the floor, and coming out of the stains, two sets of bloody footprints. The first, small ones. The second, an adult pair. And then it cuts to the shot we get before, which seems innocuous, but I just wanted to mention, because based on how this movie ends, and so much of Flanagan's horror movies being grappling with grief and trauma and the climax of this movie specifically being grief and trauma from different time frame becoming concurrent yep. to the same time frame how perfect an opening image it is of two sets of bloody footprints adult and child concurrently in the same image as the opening yep. because that's basically the ending of the movie yep. yeah the last 20 minutes in a nutshell so i'm glad they went with the opening shot that they did but i did think that was a really cool element in the script i was like oh that's a fucking perfect image i'm not i hated the opening and i'll tell you why and i have it in my notes <laughs> nope number one in capital letters <laughs> because opening a horror movie with kids is like it terrifies me every time even what was the one with the orf was it the orphan or the orphanage the orphanage that's the one that yeah, one yeah. messed me up that one not brahms the boy what nothing <laughs> So, I feel like we're driving a car and Jake just keeps grabbing the wheel. It's like, no, get off! <laughs> yanking it to the side. Right. But yes, opening horror movies with kids, for me, I would have preferred the broken family picture so I could be eased into it, mm. not kind of tossed in the well and then they put the cap on top. Like, I can't. I can't. So, yeah, that was my first nope. Thank you. Sorry for the insta trauma that we opened up with. <laughs> And one visual element of this opening that I did love is once we get the opening shot of young Kaylee looking through this crack in the door, we see Rory Coughlin, who I'm guessing will hitherto be referred to as Slater. By me. <laughs> moving through the house. And he's holding his pistol. And this, the pistol is lit just perfectly so the silver of it yes. stands out and gleams. So you have this perfect punctuation mark. Again, bookending silver imagery that we're going to start getting in the back half of the film but you get this glimpse of it through the pistol yep. at the opening it's just oh this film's so well shot yep he's holding it so low like it's just dangling there's a, there's a, a primal frightening element to yep. that mm -hmm. just the way he holds the gun rather than you know up and at the ready it's just there's something so much more menacing about the way he's prowling yeah and the way he's letting just everything dangle it, it's an intense image even with my brain going, Slater son, you know, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's still scary. And so Kaylee is hiding from this with her brother, Tim, behind her, played by Garrett Ryan from Insidious 2 and 3. And they see their moment and they take their chance and they run for the front door. But it's locked. Tim looks up and sees a woman in the dark with silver eyes standing in front of a large mirror. That's when their dad finds them, raises the gun, and it changes into an older Tim, played by Brenton Thwaites from The Giver and Maleficent. And that's when we cut to the future. So now we're in the present. And an older Tim is telling his doctor that this is the first time he's had this dream where it's him holding the gun. And his doctor is played by a personal favorite of mine, uh, Miguel Sandoval. Yes. Yay. I love Miguel Sandoval. So love me clear in present danger. He was great in Dirt Gently Solistic Detective Agency. That was fun. 
The doctor says this means he has finally admitted to his crime and is now safe to be discharged on his 21st birthday. Yeah, the doctor's logic, the way he lays it out, I mean, they cut through it pretty rapidly, but it was, you know, he uses this image of you picture yourself holding the gun and that means you're taking responsibility. And that kind of makes sense. But it's also unnerving that having a dream about holding a gun is think you're cured. <laughs> yep. yep. It was the first time I saw myself as the one holding the gun. Uh, it's, that's very good, Tim. That's very good. Well, I think it's about time we discharge. And I liked it. Fuck. <laughs> uh, maybe we're not ready to discharge it. <laughs> Let's take this back to one. <laughs> Let's roll the dice. Discharge. <laughs> it always makes me think of the scene in Gross Point Blank where John Cusack is describing his dream of being the Energizer Bunny. And he goes, you know, it's a terrible dream, Martin. Really? Why? It's like, it's an awful. And he just goes off on why it's a terrible dream. I don't know why this scene, every time I watch it, brings me back to that. But it's it it does. <laughs> the the one thing that is curious to me is that it's a little bit weird that they've kept this kid locked up in psych for I guess he's it's eleven years roughly. Yes, is what the implication is that he was ten. I mean, again, I don't want to get into long proced you know procedures and shit. But yeah, he he shot his dad, but it's pretty clear like that he would have had reason that it was self defense. So it, right. I mean, better to be in the care of these guys than probably the foster experience. It just struck me as an odd thing that he was having this like little parole hearing at age 21 for a crime that would have been sealed as a youth, if nothing else, whatever. I'm not going to get into police procedures. It's just it's one of those things that clicks in my it's brain. Not Italy. Like, this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> if this was Italy, it'd be a whole other story. Or Albania. Any castle freak, basically. That would be a whole other story. Worst cops ever. <laughs> I mean, again, it, it didn't take too much away from it, but it was one of those things that clicked in my mind. Like, that's a little odd, especially considered like, oh, yeah, you're fine. You had a dream about murdering yourself and your sister. Yeah, you're cured. <laughs> Good to go. You get the impression for the last decade, he's been refusing to lie about this. It was like, the goddamn mirror killed my family. God damn it. <laughs> he finally changed his story. Like, but we're, we're pretty sure you shot your father. He's like, no, no, no. <laughs> damn supernatural creepy ass mirror fuck you and so you know the idea that he's rooting himself in reality again is the key yeah yeah i get it yeah look i mean like i said it didn't detract from anything it was just one of those things that felt a little bit off based on the information you're given yep they breeze through it pretty quick there's a little bit more between him and the doctor in the script but not much mainly in, in a scene that's coming up when he's being discharged and he's packing and they have a little dialogue exchange there's slightly more there but that's it's more so giving context on the fact that his sister turned down therapy which is yep. something they mentioned in passing yeah. but there's more about it in the script yeah and, and for that reason the doctor is worried that he's like listen you know you have been grounding yourself in reality your sister has not has been not so you need to protect your recovery from your sister and love her be with her hang out whatever but protect yourself they take a big enough whack at psychology in this that it makes me wonder if Mike is a uh, Scientologist. Because <laughs> there's literally nothing that any of the, the psychology stuff that they mentioned in this, is, it's all a hindrance, basically. Yep. Who gives a shit if he is or not? I, it's just one of those things. It's like, oh, wow, it really takes a kind of a sharp look at that. It feels to me more like a indictment on how modern day science and psychiatry would react to something outside the norm the supernatural it would be incredibly natural for them to go we're not going to believe your ass there's no way in hell this is true rooted in experience 
Show me one other example of where a mirror went around killing people, you know, and then we can talk. But well, <laughs> well look, shit, we can list dozens. Just we have many, actually. It's a, a Kevin Bacon film. There's that. You know. <laughs> so now we cut to Kaylee, played by uh, Karen Guerin from Doctor Who and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. God bless her. She's overseeing an auction where they bring out the mirror, the one we saw from earlier. She is visibly upset at the sight of it. And at this point, we also get a cameo from Courtney Bell as the auctioneer. auctioneer. Yay! She's fantastic. I love her and everything I've seen her. Yeah, co-lead of Absentia. And Before I Wake. And Katie Parker's in a deleted scene. Yes. If you have the Blu-ray and you watch the deleted scenes, you'll see a sequence with Katie Parker. Yeah, I saw her in in the INDB listing. I kept looking for her. I'm like, where the hell are you? She's not there. <laughs> she's not there. No, she comes. She's in a scene that's a little bit after this, but it is early on. They do mention that the mirror was in Balmoral Castle, which is pretty. They did. That's all I've got. That was to add very here. exciting. Yeah. Well, they also mention. It's introduced with what a lot of folks assume is the WWE Studios influence, which is the first line is, our next item for bid is a gorgeous antique mirror recovered from the Levesque estate. Levesque is the last name of Paul Levesque, who's also Triple H, who is WWE wrestler, VP of something or other, and also Vince McMahon's son-in-law. So everyone assumed, oh, Levesque, that's such a unique name. That must be a reference to WWE Studios. But they pronounce it differently. He pronounces it Levesque, and they very specifically say Levesque in this. So I, like we was talking with Nick earlier, I don't know if it's a nod or not. It seems like a weird demand. Like we talked in our See No Evil episode about Vince McMahon's demand for See No Evil was, you know, I want Kane to have a three-foot cock. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems kind of measly that his demand for, I could be put my son-in-law's last name in it, damn it. <laughs> Something like that. Nah, but it's just a strange coincidence. Yeah, because it was already there by the time WWE came anywhere near this. It was completed and had already premiered at the Toronto Film Festival by the time WWE Studios got involved. But this is why it's worth mentioning, because a lot of folks assume that's a reference to Triple H. Before this, we get one of my favorite parts of the movie, which is the Triple P, which is Karen Gian's perfectly pendulous ponytail. <laughs> I hate yes! that ponytail. I hate it. I hate it so much. Oh, you hate it? Oh, I love it so much. <sighs> the arc is just perfect as it's swinging with every step, just like a pendulum. It is amazing. It takes up the whole fucking screen. And every time I watched it, I kept, why did he put this here? Is this an Easter egg for something else? Because it just fucking goes back and forth and back and forth. And I hate it so much. But the green that she's wearing is really nice. So that's cool. <laughs> much like the movie, it goes back and forth. <laughs> yeah, two items on that bit. A, I didn't get to do a full watch through paying specific attention to the costuming. But pay attention to who is wearing green and when. Because green is the big image in this. And that's part of kind of a function that her ponytail serves intentionally or not was it kind of drives your eyes to the side of the frame which is a green plants that line the hallway as she's approaching <gasps> the room and there's about three pairs of these potted plants each successive one is progressively more and more dead oh i didn't notice and, that and then oh, when she gets shit. to the threshold of the hallway they're basically half desiccated <gasps> so that's kind of one upside of her ponytail is it makes you look on the periphery of the frame and see these green potted plants that are getting less and less vibrant that's as brilliant. she enters the main hall God that's fantastic that's genius i still hate it it's <laughs> perfect and also worth noting just again she is i think phenomenal in this in mm -hmm. this very first scene when she sees the mirror. Yep. Just the eye acting. It's, yep. it, it's dialogueless. It's just eye acting. So it's just, oh, and oh my God, she's so good. I'm going to be saying that a lot. <laughs> she Amy Ponded the hell out of this entire yep. movie. I was, uh <laughs> She was perfect for this role. She was yep. absolutely fantastic. She is so tightly wound yeah. in this the entire time. 
I wouldn't say she's unhinged, but she is just very, very lightly hinged. <laughs> so she's traumatized from the events of her youth, yeah. and she's been planning for this for a decade. So, yeah. <laughs> yup. And like, you know, the, the doctor tells her brothers, like, she's not had anybody to deal with this stuff with. And clearly that has had an impact. I mean, she's done all right for herself with the rich guy and, you know, she went to college and all that. But yeah, she is she is tightly wound but clearly just to get to this point jesus christ yeah one of the things they trimmed from the there's a bit of it in the deleted scenes and there's a bit more of it in the script is the whole debate as far as whether or not her relationship with michael is specifically to get to the mirror it's a sham it would not be surprising (laughs) that would make a lot of sense yep she went straight for the head of this you know auction group or whatever the man's got the last name and she knew what she wanted and she went for it Means to an end. It doesn't hurt that he looks like the kind of guy that would eventually play a forgettable Superman. Yep. I agree. (laughs) Yep. Yep. So Kaylee picks up Tim and they're happy to see each other. You know, loving siblings reunited. And she gives him a check for his half of the parents' estate, which is sizable. He's he's impressed to see it. Look, I'm always happy when somebody gives me a hundred grand check. Right? Hint, hint, any listener out there. Any of you. I don't care who. (laughs) She says she will help him find an apartment, but he's also happy to stay with her and her fiance. She's upset they wouldn't let her in to see him. And he admits that it was him that wouldn't let her in. Uh, He needed more time and space. And she understands. Then she immediately goes into business. Tells him she's found it. And he's instantly shaken. Like, he knows what the hell she's talking about. Says we'll have access to it for a few days. He says, for what? She says, to keep our promise. To kill it. At which point we cut to 11 years earlier. The family is moving into their house. And the dog already knows shit's up. Yeah. Very first shot is the dog online. Bark, bark, bark. Just nope, 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 nope. (laughs) (laughs) Shit's still in the truck. And the dog's like a mason, the the yellow lab. He's just nope, 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 nope. I immediately went to Big Mouth with this. He's just going, evil, 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 evil. Yes. This mirror will bring us nothing but evil. (laughs) It's true. So the movers are being directed by the mom, Marie, played by Katie Sackhoff. Starbuck from, is hey, a mom! Starbuck yes. from Battlestar Galactica and Don't Knock Twice. Sure. <laughs> I thought for sure you would have mentioned White Noise too. No. <laughs> so dad is already on the phone and working from home. This is Alan, as we've discussed earlier. The kids are playing toy guns throughout the house and the mirror is brought in and installed. The mom's a little concerned about how expensive the office setup is, but it ends up conceding that he can do his office however he wants. He said she wanted antiques, so here we go. Cut back to the present. This is going to be an ongoing theme of jumping back and forth from the past to the future, to the point where, like you said earlier, at the end, they become almost intertwined, one and the same. Yeah, this is the sequence between Tim and his sister, and she's dropping him off in a hotel, and she's like, you know, you sure you want to stay here? And he's like, you know, yeah, I'm sure. And he's sitting and he's looking in a mirror, which is an obvious parallel to the Lasser glass. But it's also worth noting that when they can, several edits in this films are transitions between reflections. And when Kaylee's leaving the auction hall, she's reflected in the mirror. There's a close up of the glass and she's reflected. It cuts to Tim leaving the facility and you can faintly see his reflection in the transparent glass when he's waiting to be buzzed out. Same thing here. This sequence ends with adult Tim looking in the mirror and it transitions to his mother, Marie, in the past looking in the mirror. But the one thing I want to mention about this hotel sequence is probably the biggest change from the script. And it's nothing major, but it's something notable, which is 
the relationship between the brother and the sister was a bit more contentious in the script. So I'll give you an example. So when Kaylee drops him off at the hotel and, you know, her brother's clearly has dismay about her plan to confront the mirror as she goes to leave in the finished film, she just you know, kind of softly says, I could really use your help in the script. Here's how that bit reads. Kaylee spins on her heels. She's had enough. Kaylee. Well, it's happening tomorrow night with or without you. I know you think you're cured or whatever, and maybe it's better that you live the lie. But if you're really going to make me do this alone, I'm sorry they ever let you out. Oh, shit. Wow. Damn. <laughs> so it's much more overtly kind of, kind of like, fuck you when he balks at the plan. And I'm glad they dialed that back. Yeah. It makes sense that clearly in context where she thinks he's been spending like her 11 years holding on to this very specific idea. So in context, it makes sense. But it was refreshing to not have this instantly like very contentious, very friction heavy dynamic between siblings. I liked it that they dialed it back. And there was a degree of empathy on her part for the angle which Tim is approaching everything from. Yep. It still would have fit, though. I mean, yeah, because yeah, yeah. he's the only person she can rely on. He is the only person who will believe her, or understand what happened. So the idea that he's abandoning her to this would be just gut wrenching. But I, I definitely get the feeling that she wasn't going to give up on him until the time came to do stuff. And, was, and yeah. he was there. So it worked out. And it really highlights the trauma that they went through, just their their relationship. Being contentious is fine, but it feels like that's a more normal, I don't want to say healthy, but it's it's definitely a more normal way for siblings who are 20, 21 to relate to each other, whereas their slight awkwardness... Or 40s. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> but their kind of polite awkwardness, the way it plays out in this, I, I think does a better job of illustrating how far they are apart, you know, in terms of how they've dealt with their trauma. It was refreshingly different from what most horror films would do. Again, one of Flanagan's biggest strengths has always been his attention to characters, which becomes you know apparent in everything he's done since then. And this was that same thing, a degree of empathy, which a lot of films wouldn't have embraced. Not, and again, there was certainly a significant degree of empathy in the script, but that was an element of embracing that more, I think, worked in their favor. So she leaves, and yeah, now we get a transition to the past of adult Marie, their mother, played by Kitty Sackhoff, looking in a bathroom mirror, and looking at herself with some apprehension, and specifically looking at a cesarean scar that she has towards her lower abdomen. And this is important, because what becomes an ongoing theme later in the film is the entity in this wants to take advantage of your own personal self-concerns the things that you're hung up on your fears and your insecurities yeah. this is something that upsets her so it's going to be aware of it and use it against her well it's also a connection to the specific mirror spirit that seems to entwine itself with them mm -hmm. the one that seems to be hanging about for them from all the things that are in the mirror is the one that died of a miscarriage yeah, marisol whereas you know she's got the the scar there it develops at least a little bit on on repeated watchings once you realize kind of that's the specific entity that's hanging about mm -hmm. it creates a connection there I, well, I drew the same conclusion as soon as i saw that her cesarean scar when that scene popped up that was my nope number two in capital letters <laughs> <laughs> because you know i'm i'm very sensitive to anything relating to 
parenthood. And that could be because Disney movies, you know, kill all the moms. Within the first five minutes. Within the first five minutes. So this one, you know, as soon as she starts showing a scar, I'm now feeling personally attacked. I know where this is going. And it did go there. But we'll, we'll mm-hmm. get to that. I kind of imagine Shasta's notes is just a page full of nope, 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 nope. 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 There's a little space and then more nopes. That is correct. Increasingly bigger font. <laughs> Looks like the piece of notepad paper that Marie finds in Alan's drawer where he wrote Marisol over and yep. over again. It's just nope, 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 all work and no Marisol makes Alan a dull guy. <laughs> In the middle, there's one absolutely not. And then back to nope. nope, nope. <laughs> this I could do without. I've got an absolutely not in this. I tell you what, it's coming up later. We'll get to it. So, you know, Marie is upset about her scar and Alan uh, helps her, at least for the moment, get over it by uh, letting her know that it doesn't bother him at all and begins sexing her up. And they have this really nice 90 degree angle turn on the camera Yep, as he works his way up to her face. Yeah, two things I wanted to mention on that one, just like you mentioned, because we talked about in episode four, which is Mike Flanagan's fondness for the rotating, you know, 45 degree tilt or 90 degree tilt. I yeah. love Gets it. Gets me every time. So first instance of that in this movie, there's another one later, but this is the first one. So it was really cool to see that. The uh, second thing is it transitions after the bit of him where he's going down on Katie Sackhoff, it transitions to him opening the fridge and there's the juice box that says tasty and juicy. I did see that! <laughs> and Mike Flanagan mentions on the commentary, he said, yeah, we, we didn't intend to do that. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and then he sprays when it he on his shirt. S- sprays it all over himself? Yes! Come on. Yes. Mmm, <laughs> fruit punch. <laughs> so, yeah, crack me up. That scene's actually, you, you talk about colors, it was the first one that caught me a little off guard. Because after he has had the incident with the jukebox, <laughs> you know, he goes in and he switches the light on. And there's two things that, that I, I just found weird about that. First, when he switches the wall switch outside, it turns on his desk lamp. And I maybe it's just me, but I've never had a desk lamp connected to a wall switch before. It's always other lamps. Also, it's a banker's lamp, but the glass is yellow and not green. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I looked him up after this. It was like, is that? Because it had to be on purpose, because how do you even find a banker's lamp that's got a yellow? You, you can find them, but there's still, like, you, if you put that in, it's like one out of every 50 hits you get is a different color than green. Mm-hmm. So I, I wonder if that was a conscious choice or not. I hate the lighting in his office. Yeah. <laughs> I just do. Yeah, a lot of the lighting throughout the house are these very warm colors, which are designed to make these greens pop. So it was probably the, him changing that to specifically take a green element out of his office so you would just have kind of standard warm yellow lighting to make the surrounding green elements pop because part of the transition of the film just like as we'll find out the lasser glass seeps life from things is watching this movie start with a bright vibrant green color palette and by the time you get to the ending sequence which is largely at night you're in this deep like dark gray green color palette this kind of sickly somber so probably related to that it was just it was something that jumped out at me speaking of jumping out kate siegel alert (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yep. Kate Siegel playing Marisol. Yeah. So he's just coming from his midnight snack. He walks up and it's. <laughs> <laughs> so he's walking back to the bedroom and it's nice because for half a second, it's shot almost like he's going to have to deal with this now. He walks up. She's standing there. He looks up while she's still on screen. You cut to his face kind of like, what the hell? And then they cut back and she's gone. It's this wonderful moment of, I feel, playing with the audience in your expectations. Very subtle, very small, but I felt it. 
and she's terrifying because yep. she's all silver-eyed. Anytime an entity from the mirror manifests and apparates, it has these mirrored eyes. They've all got their Superman 3 eyes. It fucked me up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that scene in Superman 3 where the <laughs> where Robert Vaughn's sister gets pulled into the computer mm-hmm. and turned into a cyborg, that is one of the most traumatizing movie moments for me as a kid. It's messed so up. Not only glowing eyes, but specifically silver ones. Fuck yes. me up. <laughs> it's yes. like, ah, this in Phantasm. Ah. <laughs> oh, oh. So it's not just that either, because she's also got from the waist down blood on her white dress. Right. Because as we learn later, she's the uh, victim who uh, miscarried. She's also got that sort of knowing Kate Siegel grin. Yes. yes. That is awesome in most things and then really unnerving when she's playing something like this. Uh-huh. She is perfect for this role. Mm-hmm. She is absolutely because she has no real lines. It's all body language. It's all facial expression. It's all presence. And she exudes it. Every second she's on the screen, she is a terrifying presence and no one you want to fuck with. <laughs> <laughs> she was Absolutely perfect for this role. You know, it, it's funny. We keep talking about sort of these primal fears and we talked about mirrors and Eric's got the thing about glowing eyes. I found a little quote from Flanagan about what scared him. And it's possible I read this in episode four, but I'm going to read it again. It's from Philly Mag. And guy asks, what's the first thing you can remember being afraid of? And Mike Flanagan answers, Fraggle Rock. <laughs> I remember this. The, the episode tunnel. about the terrible tunnel where all the souls of the little fraggles who got lost or trapped forever scared the shit out of me. It took years after Absentia was finished for me to connect the dots there. It's like my Fraggle Rock riff. I was trying to find anything about that in this, and I didn't find much. But I remember you bringing that up with uh, episode four. Yeah, I feel like I must have read, and, and I'm going to read it on like other episodes too because it's great. <laughs> yeah, well, it specifically came up. We talked about it in relation to Absentia because Absentia is literally about a terrible tunnel. So I guess I found that quote twice. But man, it's great, Fraggle Rock. That's awesome. Anyway. <laughs> Everyone should grow up on Fraggle Rock, just saying. And if you want us to expand on Fraggle Rock, you should apparently listen to episode four, which I should have listened to before recording this, so I didn't repeat everything, but, you know, whatever. I sing the Fraggle Rock theme in that episode. No one remember, Nobody loves me. <laughs> <laughs> Man, episode four came out 100 years ago in the COVID <laughs> Pre-COVID, year. that was our pre-COVID episode. <laughs> that was the last episode we all recorded in the studio. Aww. I miss that. So now we cut to older Kaylee in the middle of the night. She hears a dog barking. She goes to check on it. And we find that she is in her childhood house and she's in her dad's office and there's the mirror on the wall. And she approaches it, looks at it, and then she turns to leave and her father grabs her by the throat, choking her, at which point she awakens screaming and is settled down by her fiance, Michael, played by James Lafferty from One Tree Hill and S. Darko. In their appropriately sized bed, yeah. which is something that's apparently very rare in horror movies. <laughs> I love that sticks with you. <laughs> <laughs> This is America, Jake. Everybody's poor. Everybody's got small beds. Just get over it. <laughs> Look, you know as well as I do that if you're married, you're not sleeping on a double bed. It's just no, not sure happening. you are. Just like you're sleeping uh, with one leg on the floor. Just get over it. <laughs> you just do it. I did that for like a solid year, yeah. man. If you're married and you have a <laughs> double bed, she's sleeping on it. You're sleeping somewhere else. That's how that works. Can confirm. <laughs> All these happy couples in these movies do not sleep on fucking double beds. They do not. Of course, this one where they may be a sham couple, they're sleeping on the giant satin sheet love bed. <laughs> What I wrote was rich people and their furniture, because this entire movie is rich people and their fucking furniture, because, you know, he's got the money and they got this big ass bed. 
I'm still mad. <laughs> yeah, he's got all that auction cash because his name right? is on the auction. <laughs> right? Their job is, yeah, it's specifically rich people shit. Yep. His name is all over that auction house and on the shirts, so you know he's got the cash. Absolutely. Big fucking money selling rich people shit to other rich people, man. Cursed rich people shit. that's actually our transition to the next scene because after her (laughs) night terror is she's actually sitting there and jotting some notes down during her day job and there's random rich people shit strewn about the desk (laughs) just fancy things for items really wanted them to be like the fucking curlin nescar from tng or something really fucking random (laughs) (laughs) so she's sitting there jotting down some notes on this rich people shit and then her rich ass fiance comes in and says hi so uh, we've got photos of dead people in the printer here, and we're starting to get complaints. So, uh, specifically, Katie Siegel and Marisol. Yeah. So, can I get any idea about what's going on? And her response is basically, you know, you, I'm going through some shit. You'll just have to trust me on this. Bear with me. It's not a good enough excuse to be printing out dead people photos at your fucking auction job. It's just not. But she got her own fucking printer out of it. <laughs> Should I be concerned that the other thing I found in the printer is our life insurance policy? <laughs> <laughs> it was also mentioned earlier when we first see the mirror at the auction house that the mirror does have a crack in it, a small one in the bottom right corner. And he mentions that there is a transfer request in to have the mirror fixed when he was under the impression that the owners had wanted it untouched, left as is. And she said that changed their minds. And that she'll take care of it. Great start to the relationship. Mm. But really what this is, is that she has set up the transfer request so that she can get access to the mirror for a night or two and do what she needs to do. I tell you what I like best is when I was thinking about this, is that what's eventually going to defeat this mirror is sloppy movers. It's just like like two dudes are eventually (laughs) just going to drop this. It's going (laughs) to shatter and they're going to be like, oh, shit. Like that's eventually how it's going down for this mirror. Well, they make a point when they first bring the mirror out early on about talking about its make when they're in the auction house. And they mention specifically that it's Bavarian black cedar. Mm -hmm. And I was really hoping for a reveal that it's not the glass that's cursed. It's the wood. Yes. Oh, that would be nice. Shatter the glass, but it still fucking works. It just turns into an actual portal. You can see the other side of it and shit just starts walking out. (laughs) Everyone knows that you do not Cut that shit down. Leave those Bavarian forests alone, man. (laughs) Speaking of the origins of the mirror, it is worth mentioning that Flanagan was inspired by the stories of H.P. Lovecraft. He chose to not explain the mirror's origins because he felt that Lovecraft literature often seemed to be like this alien force that if you even were to try to comprehend it completely would drive you mad and that evil in the world doesn't have an answer. He really just wanted to go on the fact that this thing just exists you're not going to wrap your head around it, but you're going to suffer its consequences. And I thought that was nice. I like that. Yeah, I've got a good quote about that. This is from the Den of Geek interview. I then got into Lovecraft in a big way. And that idea of kind of this other world just beyond the veil of ours that defies understanding and doesn't need a backstory and an explanation, you know, like this is an alien force that if you even were to try to comprehend it, it would completely drive you mad. I thought that was scarier than anything. A lot of horror fiction kind of bends over backwards to create this elaborate reason why this evil thing is the way it is or where it came from i always feel like that takes away some of the scare evil in this world doesn't have an answer and we try as a culture to create one in so many different ways that i think in our fiction where we don't give it the kind of explanation it's just scarier so that's something that i believe philosophically for the genre but it's hard sometimes to make that argument with producers and studios and like you were talking about and i read that quote and it applies to a lot of his stuff like absentia for sure Mm -hmm. and definitely in hush 
Like these are just things. You don't get any. You get like hints. Well, not in Hush. You get nothing in Hush. But you get hints and ideas. Like they give a history for the Lasher Glass to a certain point back to uh, 1754. But nothing on its origins or what's in it or, you know, what's really going on. Hell, I mean, because we don't know how it was made while we start in 1754, it may have predated that significantly. Yep. I guess we'll go ahead and get into this now. It won't take too long. But th- so there is an Indian remake of this called Dobara See Your Evil that was released in 2017. I really thought about watching it for this and I just <laughs> didn't end up. That was my time. question. Did anybody watch it? Unfortunately, no. OK, I did. I wasn't able to find one with English subtitles, but it, about a third of it's in English. So and it's very close, generally in structure to this. After we get done talking about Oculus, I'll talk about it a bit more. It opens with the origin of the mirror. Really? Ooh. It opens with a scene in England of a woman being carted out into a village and they're assembling a pyre. And you have a voiceover say, in the name of Her Majesty, Mary Tudor, Queen of England, yes! Barbara Smith has been found guilty of witchcraft and is sentenced to death. And it's pretty basic. But yeah, they have the mirror propped up. And they're doing all this stuff in the mirror. And the mirror is basically facing this witch, Barbara Smith, as she's burned alive. So you see her on fire reflected in the mirror. And then they do this thing where basically everything except the mirror fades to black. So it's just the mirror with this woman on fire in the center of it. Hmm. So you do get an origin story for it in that. I'm glad they didn't do it in the actual film. Yes. Yeah. I am glad yeah. they went with what I, I I think of as the 1408 yes. explanation, which I don't know about the actual short but all I remember is the line from the movie of Sam Jackson going, it's an evil fucking room. And in this case, it's, just, it's an evil fucking mirror. Yep. That's all you need. And it's more terrifying because of that. What more do you need to know? You know, kind of related to that. Uh, another quote this is from a way too indie interview. It's about the short. You planned Oculus as an anthology of short films originally. Nine. Do you still want to keep making more films about the Lasser Glass? I would love to keep telling stories about this mirror. The beauty of having an artifact like this which is such a long history is that you can literally pick it up and put it anywhere. It'll interact with people differently depending on who they are. And that gives me endless possibilities for writing. I think I could write about this mirror for the rest of my life. It's too fun. We call it a portable overlook hotel. No, nope. this is an hey, interview from 2014. Nice. Very and nice. I love that about it. Wow. I, especially since he put it in the overlook hotel. I love that we can just pick this thing up and drop it into a whole other movie if we want to and see what happens. So here's what we ought to do is we ought to reach out to Mike and say, hey, we publish anthologies Mike, <laughs> here at Oddity Prodigies. We will take one of and these. Yes. Thank you. How would you like to do a lesser glass anthology? We don't even need him to necessarily do it. We just need him to sign off on it. And then we can put out submissions for people to make their own lesser glass short stories. And we'll make a big old book out of it. Yeah. If he and Jeff Howard want to dip their toes into prose, <laughs> unintentional rhyme there. But that'd we be are there for yeah, it. And we, we have a great stable of writers as proven by the book available on Amazon. Scary stuff. A horror anthology edited by Nicholas Lee, me and myself. Introduction by Shasta Shots. Introduction by me? Shasta Shots. Which is, again, available wherever books are sold. If you're interested, it's just throwing this out there for no reason at all. Just saying stuff on a podcast. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> Let's remember not to do that at the ending because we got the plug in early. <laughs> so real quick. Yeah. So we get the sequence with Kaylee talking to Michael and talking about the photos and whatnot. This is where the deleted scene with Katie Parker would have come in, which is Tim going in to buy a cell phone and telling Katie Parker, you know, I need a cell phone. She's trying to sell him all various plans. 
it's you know 4G wireless blah, blah. he's like I have no idea what you're talking about she's oh you need the granny plan okay cute little scene with her there was an unfilmed scene with him calling Kaylee from what I have in my notes there's also this is where a deleted scene would have gone that's on the Blu-ray between Alan and Marie where they're talking about the plants dying Marie's like you know no matter what I do all these plants are dying and Alan's like it must be the tap water I don't know <laughs> and which is referenced later but the fact that they drink from a Brita filter later in the movie that's first mentioned here instead in the finished film we cut to Kaylee and the confrontation with the Lasser Glass, where we first get a quick cameo by Scott Graham, from the who was the star of the original short, yep, and was in Ghost of Hamilton Street. And he's playing Warren in this case, who's kind of a handyman who works in conjunction with Dumont Organization. Oh, what a scene this is. <laughs> <laughs> with, with Kaylee staring down this mirror and just telling it, you must be hungry. To which it's really hard not to think of the mirror going, feed me. <laughs> Does it have to be puppies? Feed me. <laughs> Does it have to be dead? Feed me. <laughs> feed, feed me, Kaylee. Feed me all night long. <laughs> you can do it. You have no idea how much I love you for connecting this movie to Little Shop of Horrors. Thank you. <laughs> So, yeah, she touches the crack in the glass and she's like caressingly like she loves it. Like she's like, I'm just really hope this hurts you. You know, it, oh, I hated this. Not scene. unlike the way Slater touches the wife's scar earlier. Oh, just throwing that out there. Nice connection. She caresses yeah. the scar in the mirror. Very similar the way he caresses the scar in his wife. Yeah, no, this scene started and it says, nope, number three. <laughs> Ding. <laughs> Trivia, I worked in a museum and I've been in special collections a number of times. And I used to work in the basement of a library, which used to be an old bank vault. Oh, shit covered up in a dark room when you're by yourself or not by yourself. <laughs> Fuck it. Awful. Fuck Awful. With no. shit lighting. No. And that was my job. I did a lot of uh, databasing of the collections and looking at, you know, shit that's a thousand years old. And it was fucking terrifying. You just described horror movie bingo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if there were white sheets shits in there. Nope. Mm -mm. That. Oh, let me tell you. And when I had to turn out the light, the museum wasn't wired to have lights near the exit. So I had to flip the light switch and then run down the corridor yeah. as I'm closing the museum. Mm -mm. Fucking great. Mm -mm. I would have quit. Mm -mm. I would have quit. Yeah. Like, I don't do well with basements. I don't do well with like white sheet ghosts are like my primordial fear. And then, yep. you know, Mine too. basements Mine where too. if you have to flick out the light and then, you know, because you you learn how fast you it. are as a kid. Yes. When you have to turn out a light in a basement. And that if I correct. had to do that and run down a hall, fuck no, I'd have. Nope. Mm -mm. Nope. <laughs> I'm getting I'm anxious just thinking about you having to do that, Shasta. But even better, that hallway also ran past the children's room. Oh, oh fuck no. No, 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 no. I uh, I loved my time in the museum, but this scene right here, I as soon as it came on the first time we saw it, I was done. I this was my nope moment. I walked into the kitchen and I just I had a minute. And then I came back in because I knew what was going to happen. You can guess there's only a list of like, you know, maybe five top five things that are going to happen when there are things covered in sheets and yep. shit on shelves. That's obviously old rich people shit. So that happened. Good times. So, yeah, like you know, she sees these three mannequins or, or look like mannequins or busts. She sees three in the mirror and they all turn. And she's like, oh, they're supposed to be two. And then she goes back to them and she pulls one off. It's a bust. She pulls another one off. It's another bust. She's about to pull the third one when the delivery guy shows up and interrupts, which is good. Thank you, Warren. Because when she looks back, it's 
gone. It's like, oh, oh. <laughs> what was what was going to be under there? Nothing good. Her dad. No, it's fine. I would have thought mom. I would have assumed it was mom in there. I, I would assume it was it was well, who knows? Marisol. Yeah, probably Marisol. <laughs> Somebody tweeted Jeff Howard about that and said, so what would have been under the third sheet? And his response was, hopefully neither of us ever find out. Nice. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> so I guess that's the semi official response. Yeah. Two things on this sequence. One is this is pretty much my note here is we're officially fucked at this point. Yes. Now that we've established what this thing can do. This is where we hit Foxville. So officially, <laughs> cross the city she limits. Still has, it's it's not until they're in the house when they're officially completely and utterly doomed. I don't think they're fucked here. I I did. her brother certainly isn't because he, he can still know. do the smart thing and drive to California. <laughs> but for me, this was the scene that showed that it was still alive and it was still active and it could still manifest. Doesn't mean they didn't have a chance to defeat it. Later on, it's clear as day. They are screwed. <laughs> yeah, just speaking in principle as far as like how this thing operates. Once you see it, it was like, okay, I know what the ending of this is going to be. If you have the, the scale of where you're weighing, is this going to have a good ending or not good ending? This is the point where it's like, all right, yeah, the scale tips. I'm, I'm pretty sure I know where this is going to end up. I don't know the specifics, but I know generally where we're going to end up. And it actually ends up being a little harsher than you might expect. Yep. It's so harsh. There is nothing in this movie that ever gave me a second of hope that this would have a happy ending. Not one second. <laughs> because here's the other element of it. So we're already establishing how this thing operates. And they also established that it's doing this on very little energy. Yes. That it's basically just a fragment of life force that it's assimilated just from brief proximity to things. Plants and her being in the room, it's seeped up enough to do this shit. Mm -hmm. So A, again, fucksville. Second, that it's doing this and it's trying to fuck with her immediately, even with this little bit of energy. All I can think of is the scene in Super Troopers when they shoot Mac in the dick. <laughs> and it's like, how you feeling there, Lasser Glass? Good enough to hunt your mother! <laughs> <laughs> Even when it's writhing on the ground, <laughs> good enough to haunt your mother. That's awesome. <laughs> You're a sick motherfucker, Mac. <laughs> <laughs> this brings us to what my feelings on its intentions and goals are. I very much feel, without getting too much into specifics that will come up later, it is bestial. It is animalistic. It is smart. And it knows how to fuck with people and it knows what to do to get what it wants. But its one primary goal is to feed. It wants to feed. It's not about getting out into the world. It's not about reproducing. It's not about establishing some sort of power or structure of any sort. It just wants to eat. And so when it's weak, it can do minor manifestations. And the more it feeds, the stronger it gets and the more it can do. But all it's doing with that extra energy is just focusing on feeding. It increases its ability and its options with what it's fucking with. You're never going to have a situation where it's like, well, I'm going to let you live because I need you to take me to this place so I can get these people. No, it's like food. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yes, even in its weakened state, even in its I can barely do anything, it sees her and goes, Oh, yeah, I remember you. You you look tasty. Ugh. I, I'll make a move. Let's try this. <laughs> See, I, I agree with you in that, it, yeah, it's functionally a shark. Its only interest is to feed. I think it's a little bit more malevolent than bestial. And the reason I think this, well, there's two things. I think One, it has to be. That, that's what it's eating. 
your pain, your suffering. It, it needs to be as malevolent as possible to achieve. Yeah, that. but it's the way it does it because it corrupts people. It shows them their worst and brings them to their worst and it seduces them with their own evil or with their own darkness, their own insecurities and wrongs. And yeah. it turns it into the and, you know, there's entities that entities, souls or whatever that it live in there. And they come out. And I think like in this one, it's Marisol, but another one, it might be whoever that couple in the window was, and they might have different ways of torturing people, but it, it seduces people with their own suppressed darkness, I guess is the best way I could say. It reminds me very much of a, of a story arc in the James Robinson Starman comics, where there's a poster. It's a magic poster. It's a possessed poster. And he goes around to town and he puts it up and it basically just eats people. And it absorbs them into it. And then they're, you know, they're gone. And it's this kind of hell that exists within this poster. Eventually they beat it. And what happens is all of these people from all, you know, the past 200 years come pouring out. And they've been in this kind of hell. And they've helped this thing because they had no choice. Every time I watch Oculus, it makes me think of this story arc. And I think that's kind of what the mirror does. It corrupts people, brings them into its little mirror world. And then when it finds a new host, it's like, all right. You're up, Marisol. I, who knows what's actually in there? But it, it, for me, it feels more malevolent and targeted in the way it does things than just being an animal. I don't attribute malevolence to it. By that, I mean, I feel for malevolence, you have to have choice and intent. You have to have the, the like, I could be lenient to you, but I'm choosing to make things worse for you. Whereas in this case, it felt much more like, when all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. You know, <laughs> it's like this is all it can do. And that's what it does. Except it fucks with them. The apple. The apple. Yes. Well, that's intentional. You can also use the ending of this movie as a bellwether for that without giving away. We'll get to the ending later. But because the ending of this movie could could be viewed as it just being a dick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, buddy. <laughs> and that's part of why I attribute uh, intelligence to it rather than like, I think. Instead of just like Rawhead Rex or some, you know, mindless monster, I think it's more demonic than that. With like the mom, she had her insecurities about her body and about what was happening to her body. And it used that against her. And with Alan, it was. I mean, he even says it, you know, I've seen the devil and he is me. Yeah, he's, he's dealing with his own personal kind of a. Which is how it's seduced. It has him. to do with. Well, with we're just giving he... away all the all the. <laughs> we'll just do it right here. <laughs> I feel that Kaylee's insecurities stem from her relationship with her current brother it's not just that this thing ate her parents it's that her brother is doubting the situation and now she has doubts so it's all about doubting your perceptions doubting what you know to be real and the apple situation plays on that you can't trust yourself because you feel you can't trust yourself we're going to expand upon that feeling that you can't trust yourself with this situation so and that comes up a lot so i i just read the apple as it given her shit like, oh, yeah, you want to you want to you want to talk about what you're going to do? Fuck you. How's this feel? I didn't get that. <laughs> That's also the worst scene in the movie by far, by far the worst. scene. This is why she's perfect for that scene, because it's all in her eyes. Mm -hmm. Those terrified, pained eyes that she gives in that moment where all you can see is like the top screw in part of the bulb. Oh, my God. Oh, it sounds so, so anyway. good. Oh, gives well me chills thinking about it. Here. No, okay, yeah. let's bring this back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so speaking of the apple bit, so after Kaylee has this bit where she, you know, she has this hallucination from the mirror, 
Warren interrupts it. So the third apparition goes away and she has this defiant. I'm great that she gives to the mirror. And now we get a dead plant dissolve from present to the past. Yes. And this takes us to a couple things. One is this gives us the first instance of young Kaylee outside spying her father and what looks to be Kate Siegel in his office where she's just glimpsing through a split in the curtains, kind of mirroring the opening shot of the movie with her eye. But specifically, then we get a dinner sequence. This is where I'm using the apple transition because there's an exchange between Katie Sackhoff and Kaylee, where Katie Sackhoff refers to Kaylee as love of my life, fruit Fruit of my my loins, to which her response is, well, I wish I'd been a pineapple. That was an ad lib. (laughs) And Katie Sackhoff's spit take of her wine there is legit because she didn't know that wine was coming and they left it in. That's awesome. That's great. I just kept watching that tiny scene, waiting for it to make sense, and it never did. No, nope, so, it's just there. Yeah. It's just a great line. I, <laughs> I wish it. I'd been a pineapple. <laughs> <laughs> At the same dinner scene, we have Alan biting his nails bloody. <gasps> Flanagan hates hands alert. Hates hands. And there's only the beginning of that, man. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. And then Kaylee asks about the lady in his office, and he's just like, I don't know what you're talking about. Daddy's a cheater. <laughs> Still <mad>. If only. <laughs> If only. That's another aspect of this that's so uncomfortable. You know that they're haunted. Yes. But it still feels so much like just this dude gaslighting his wife to the nth degree. It's so Mm -hmm. hard to watch. And it just feels so awful and slimy and gross. Like, even if you you take the mirror, throw it outside, this is still a horror movie based on, you know, their interactions. Yep. It's tough. And and it's it's one of the things that Flanagan does so well is he makes these relationships feel real. And then just starts beating the shit out of them. Yes. You know? <laughs> like, because their first couple of scenes together are so cute. And then by the end, it's like, I, I, I stop. You don't want them in the same room anymore. Yeah. You want them mm-hmm. far away from each other. Yep. And Slater plays it so well. He just devolves in this. <laughs> I love you can't call him by his character name or his actor <laughs> name. <laughs> I love it. Look, I've watched Dazed and Confused probably 60 times. We're lucky that I'm not just speaking in quotes every time we talk about him. (laughs) Well, I have a glossary released with this episode of this equals the... (laughs) Be cooler if you did. No. Fix it to be a lot better, man. (laughs) So this dinner sequence then dissolves us to the present. So they do an actual dissolve from nighttime dinner sequence to daytime present. And this is Tim played by Breton Three, who's seeing the house for the first time and is just kind of taking this all in as his sister Kaylee is moving some items into the house, in particular being a Boston Terrier in a cage, mm-hmm. simply Poor referred to puppy. as Dog. Can you imagine how hard this must be for Tim? He's been at a home for two days now, yep. at best. Yep. So, uh, hey, why don't you come to the house where all the bad shit in your life happened? You know, two <laughs> days into your freedom. Yeah, and she says, no, the house. And... The poor kid just wanted to have a nice day with his sister. She's an asshole. You just see him breaking down more and more. Couldn't we go get tapas instead? You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, why are you doing this to me? I haven't had sushi in 10 years. Sis. Could we save revenge for tomorrow? <laughs> just another note on, on their relationship since you brought it up being more contentious. In the finished film, he shows up there because he calls Kaylee and says, hey, can we meet up and talk? And she says, oh, yeah. Can you come by the house? And he says, sure. Yeah. What's your address? And she says, no. The house. The exchange in the original script is he calls her on the phone and Tim, listen, you're not still planning to Kaylee. I'm busy, Tim. I have a dangerous night ahead of me. Are you calling me to tell me you'll help me and keep your promise? Tim, long pause. No, 
No, I'm not. B. I wish I could help you some other way. Kaylee. Tell you what. You come to the house this evening, pick up your start paperwork. That way you can look me in the eye before you leave me alone with it. Oh, shit. Damn. God. So that was the original. I said, yeah, come by the house. So she's just way more unhinged in the original script. She's more pissed. She feels more betrayed. pissed. At, at, yeah, at his betrayal. Because in her mindset for 10 years, regardless of where he's at, regardless of what he's doing, he's still in her court. He's got her back. He's going to be there when we do this. And this last he's minute. He's been Ahabbing it just like nice. she has. Ed. Yeah. So yeah. while he's been progressing away from this, she's not. And she had no reason to think he was. So it's a stab in the back out of nowhere. It's a punch in the dark. Victimless crime. <laughs> <laughs> And speaking of all the rich people shit that Shasta was mentioning earlier, now we get, in addition to the Boston Terrier she's procured, we get a look at her setup. Two Mac laptops, two Mac desktops, a shitload of just other bits and pieces. It's just, yeah, just filled to the brim, fancy cameras. Now here, specifically too, so she's laying out all the different items. We'll get into the mechanics of how she has this set up here in a second. But she's laying out all the various items she has in the room, some of which being food and water. Here is where you can see Mike Flanagan very specifically transitioning to big budget filmmaking. Oculus 3, what the dude was drinking? Costco water. Kirkland Signature. Yep. This movie, Aquafina. 12 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> and she, to her credit, is driven. <laughs> she's like, you know, you can you can tell she's glad he's there, but she's got a goal and she's on it. Yep. She immediately turns on the cameras and starts detailing why she's there and what she's going to do. She introduces herself, details her precautions. She has three cameras on independent power lines. She has landlines. She's taking their cell phones to avoid any abuse from the entity through them. <laughs> she sets alarms to replace the tapes for food. She has a thermostat in place to measure temperature changes. The entire purpose of this is to prove that lasser glass is connected to predictable supernatural force. And yet... <laughs> <laughs> Tim's like, can I turn this camera off to talk to you? And she's like, bitch, <laughs> you best back the fuck up. And he's like, oh, my bad. Immediately backs up. So my problem here, when she rattles off the, the items she's got in the room and what everything is for, nothing's labeled. Why would you have these shit alarms that are all going <laughs> off at random times, whether they work or not, they're going off at random times. Why wouldn't you get a fucking label maker if you can afford all these Macs and like $10,000 camcorders and just put a fucking label up? This is our food one. Or maybe, yep, yep. stay with me here, color code them, make them different. Nothing. None of that. <laughs> Still mad. And they didn't do it in the original either. And I was mad at that one too. Is this the 45 minute replace the tape alarm? Right. <laughs> Which one is it? Is this the one hour eat and drink alarm? I've, I've got it mixed up. I'm just going to eat the tapes and split the difference. Right, because what if you leave Tim alone in the room, which we'll get to later, and he doesn't know which alarm's going off? I don't fucking know. I'm so angry. So angry. Also, this is also the sequence where she mentions any temperature change over five degrees will set off an alarm. Did anyone track the temperatures? 73? It starts at 73 degrees mm -hmm. and it ends at 78. It goes up exactly five degrees, just shy of setting off the alarm. That's great. That's awesome. Because <laughs> again, the, the mirror is, is a dick. Asshole. Yes. <laughs> At this point, her fiance Michael calls. She asks him to be calling every hour on the hour. Just to check in with her. She gives him some shit about that. She too. does. Look, seven minutes. Could you do this at exactly on the hour? Because you're a little bit early. And I thought I was specific. <laughs> <laughs> 
At this point, then she goes over the kill list for the mirror. The original Lasser owner was found dead on fire in his fireplace. The next owner was the railroad tycoon who started off at 300 pounds. And by the time he died, he was 100. Put a little fat shaming in there, too. I mean, yeah, right. That's what I thought. But that said, I wouldn't mind a mirror diet. Damn. <laughs> I think it was meant to be not so much fat shaming as it was clear it was feeding on him and draining him down. His nickname was the whale. I'm just saying. Right. Rude. <laughs> a little bit of fat shaming in there. There was fat shaming around him, but not by the mirror. <laughs> no, I, I do believe that the mirror was not fat shaming this guy. <laughs> I think his college classmates were. <laughs> the next one is a woman who's found dead in her full bathtub, which ironically, it is discovered by the coroner that she died of dehydration. Next might be one of the more disturbing ones where uh, the next owner is a mother who drowns her kids and then proceeds to smash every damn bone in her body. The one she can reach. Except her right arm yep. because she needed that to use the hammer. And like, ah, oh, when they found her, she was trying to work on her head. And I think one of the more messed up things is, is they give the implication that she would lived for a while after they found her. Mm -hmm. Like she never fully recovered. She probably lived the rest of her days out in a hospital. But she went on for a while in this condition. It's like, oh, yeah, there's oh, a difference fuck. between phrasing and that. Like you said, she did. It's not they found her and she died. It's like they found her and she never recovered. I'm like, oh, yep, that ain't good. <laughs> yeah. Just bad. That's some Johnny got his gun shit. She also goes over the fact that a lot of these people had dogs that typically went missing early in the purchase of the mirror. And that's when the first uh, food alarm goes off. And they have some food. I hate that It's sound. a terrible noise. Even the buzzing when he's trying to get through the door to get out of St. Aidan's, like, the door starts buzzing and he's just fucking staring at it. And the guy's like, push, push the door, man. Go the fuck through. And I understand the point of that is the trepidation of going back into the real world sure, or not. Sure, sure. But the, the alarm going off the whole time is like, dude, dude, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so during the meal break, uh, Tim asks, who is she talking to in the cameras when she's doing this? And she's basically talking to everyone who ever doubted or teased them or accused their dad of murder. Tim's like, well, he did. So <laughs> at which point she slaps the hell out of him. He's like, she does ever bad mouth dad again. Damn. <laughs> this was her. Her old downfall was wanting vindication and not just revenge. Mm hmm. Yep. So you got to want revenge just for yourself. Just fuck that yep. mirror right up. But say <laughs> you're trying to prove to people and, you know, yeah, that's 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 where she went. Too wrong. many variables. Yep. It's yep. too open. She gets, it goes back to the kill list. Uh, the next victim starves to death. Another dog is gone. Next is a, a teller because it's in a bank at this point. Uh, locks her manager in the vault and then tries to chew through a power cord. Nah. <laughs> oh, I did not need that picture. I oh. did. That was a great one. Every one of these is, <laughs> it has a picture come with it that's disturbing, but that one was particularly bad. I was like, oh, was God. Because you see her with her little her little flippy hairstyle in the mm -hmm. first photo they show, and then they show zombified whatever happens. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was great. I loved it. <laughs> and the next death picture she goes over is probably the clearest first cameo we have of Katie Siegel, mm -hmm. who is Marisol, who is one of the, the, the latest, the last victim prior to their parents she died of a miscarriage but they also found in the bedside next to her a bag uh neatly filled with all of her teeth yeah that was in 1975 year i was born that made me uncomfortable i bet it did no way no thank you <laughs> 
It's funny, too, because like they showed the two pictures of her. One is her on her deathbed looking all messed up and nasty. And the one before it looks like a glamour shot like she yeah. uses to like actually go to auditions with. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that is Kenny Siegel. Oh, okay. like, oh, geez, that's the next one. <laughs> this is where Tim interrupts with his little speech about there being a huge difference between causation and correlation, where he gives this great anecdote about the year that we bought this couch all this other awful shit happened. <laughs> Does that mean the couch was responsible? Which, if you guys move forward with your anthology, I'm absolutely writing a side story called Davenport instead of Oculus about the couch. <laughs> so, the couch and the lesser glass were working as a tag team. Same Bavarian cedar. <laughs> Unbeknownst to everyone, there's a small ottoman that's also followed here everywhere. It's gone. <laughs> Has she seen their dog run past at this point? Yeah, when she's talking about the mirror having the habit of eating dogs she gets the glimpse of mason the yellow lab moving through the threshold and that's when the alarm goes yeah. off because i know she yells at dog and calls it mason at one point yeah during the sequence yeah as their dialogue between brother and sister is escalating the dog is barking and says, shut up mason i have in my notes that at fifty-two forty-one, the movie explicitly tells you they're going to die but now i don't know what i was referring to and i didn't write that part down and i feel like kind of an idiot <laughs> But I think it's the dog running past because it just tells you, it's like, yeah, we can make you see whatever you want. You're done. See, see whatever you want isn't enough for me. It's high danger at that point. But there is a definitive scene in this movie where I was like, you are officially dead. You have zero chance of surviving this no matter what you want. Up till now, it's like it's powerful. It messes with perception. It can screw with what you're seeing. That's fine. You can get around that, potentially. It'll be hard. It'll be long fought. You may not all survive, but there's a chance. When we get to the scene I saw that just <laughs> threw that out the window for me, I'll bring it up. It's when they have the argument. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Yeah, this is the point where Tim brings up that very point where he says, so why don't we just end it right now and smash the goddamn thing? And the audience yells, thank you. And this is where we get the exposition about the boat anchor yep. and its whole setup. Oh, it's when he has the, the stool and she, he puts it down and she's like, it just disarmed you. Why'd you put that's it what down? it was. That's when right. the movie tells you they're going to die. And that's how you also know that she is has been 100 percent in this because he's talking to her and he's going on and he's doing his thing. And yes, he put the stool down and she says, but why did you put the stool down? And that's when you know that she's definitely been in this and she was on him and she wanted his help. But he's getting distracted and she is 100% paying attention to what is going on, whether it's real or not. But all that told me was that there's a chance that they couldn't destroy it, but they might still survive it. <laughs> there's a scene later, it's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> Quick anecdote on Dobara, the Indian remake. In the remake, there's the same sequence where the sister says, all right, if you think that, try and smash it. And he says, okay, picks up the stool, smashes it. Oh, wow. And <laughs> glass shatters. And then she leaves the room. And he goes into the hall and he was like, you know, I, I'm sorry I had to do that, but you told me to do it. Whatever. And then in, so she is now out of frame. He's talking out of frame. And then she comes in the room behind him and says, who are you talking to? Oh. And he turns around and the mirror is there and it's still intact. Nice. Oh, so they did address that in a different way in the remake. Went, All right. Bam. <laughs> shit still doesn't work. <laughs> so she finishes off the kill list by adding their mom and dad to it. And then goes on to say that she intends to prove that no one was responsible for their own actions in regards to all these murders. So this isn't just about revenge. To her, she is trying to redeem her parents and her brother. That's where she goes wrong. That is why you fail. Yep. <laughs> yep. like, that is why you fail. <laughs> you must have purity of vengeance. Listen, John Wick this shit. 
Yeah, it, it's it what's is, in that mirror? Only what you take with you. <laughs> <laughs> it is a hubris of pride. If, if she could get over the fact that people were going to think, you know, her parents and her brother were crazy and just move on with their life, they could just end this and save a lot, everybody a lot of pain. But nope, has to get redemption. And that's what will be the end of her. See, and the lesson is, is whenever you think about what other people think, it's your downfall. Yes. Fuck them. Do what you gonna do. Oh, she does add one more person to the list. She mentions that there was a teacher once who tried to destroy the glass, but he ended up just kind of standing still for a bit looking into it and then left the room and ran out into traffic. That dude got whacked. That picture is yeah. <laughs> awful picture. Dude, upside down. Oh my yeah. God. Every picture they show is just awful. <laughs> That was a good one. Speaking of awful, this oh, is where we get the oh, flashback Jesus. to Alan in his office. Ugh. And this is where Mike Flanagan on the commentary mentions that there's two things in horror movies he has a really hard time with. Eyeball stuff and fingernail stuff. But, uh, but the movie poster! Then why'd you do it to me, Mikey? <laughs> <What>? <laughs> yeah, Alan is, again, he had been having a bloody fingertip, bloody fingernail, and which Marie, his wife, had chalked up to chewing his nails during the dinner scene earlier. And now he's constantly fiddling with the Band-Aid, finally pulls it off, chucks it next to his keyboard, looks down, Band-Aid's back. At this point, he decides the prime way to remove that Band-Aid is to pull out a staple remover. Oh, my Who God. Who fucking does this? Seriously. Oh. If you haven't seen the film, you can just infer what happens from there. It's gross as hell. I just have one note here. It's a giant all caps ouch with like 10 exclamation points. <laughs> <laughs> from what I recall in the script, the staple remover bit isn't in there. But the script does make a point that as the movie goes along, by the time you get to the finale, all 10 of his fingers are in Band-Aids. Like he very specifically has Band-Aids on every single finger. I can't remember if they actually pulled that off the finished film or not. But yeah, the see, but the fingernail. Oh, man. Shit's rough. Yeah. It doesn't stop here. It just keeps going. Oh, we'll get to that. Ugh. So, yeah, we we end up back in the present. Tim saying he basically he's still rationalizing everything and feels the plant situation was probably bad water. She's like, but all these other past inc- incidents also included dead plants. And she leaves the dog in front of the mirror as bait. She is an asshole. And so is that. Mirror. <laughs> Rude. Alarm goes off and they drink more water, which brings us back to a, a dog transition. Once again, talk about transitions, transitions to the dog in the yard, whining, just laying there in the ground, whining, clearly upset, and distraught. Not feeling well. This is where we find out that Alan has purchased a gun. Maria is not happy and tells him that she does not want it out and open and accessible at all. She wants it under lock and key. He agrees to it just begrudgingly. And as she walks away, and it's not clear, this could be him saying it, or it could just be the mirror directly giving her false experiences. And I'm thinking it's more that, honestly. I don't think yeah. it's taken control of him to that level yet, but she hears him say grotesque cow, Rude. which again is coming back to her insecurities with her body, with her personal self. And oh. so it is directly attacking emotional and mental weak points. It knows she has, and you can tell it like hits her to the core. Like she, her whole face just drops it's like, Oh, yeah. you son of well, a Of bitch. course it does. Those are divorcing words right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As she hears it, when she turns around, she stares into the mirror and and sees herself reflected. And the script makes an, a bigger point of saying that when she sees herself in the mirror, she sees herself the way she thinks she looks as you know much more you know, tired and in this much more negative fashion. But that 
that's a concept that he talks about a lot in all of these interviews that I read about this movie is that mirrors lie. Yep. We think of ourselves and our perception of ourselves is what we see in a mirror, you know, look in a mirror, but mirrors have imperfections too. Everything is backwards for one. Every mirror is distorted in some fashion. Yeah, we never really have the exact right image of ourselves, and that's a lot of what this movie is about. And it's it's an interesting concept, and it's true. It's something you don't tend to think about because you look at yourself in a mirror. I'm like, yeah, that's what I look like, but nope, you're never really quite sure. To quote the butthole surfers, you never know quite how you look in other people's eyes either. Yep. It's an interesting concept, and it, it plays in so much in this, especially as it relates to Starbuck and her. We keep talking about her insecurities and how the mirror goes right after. It's interesting when you think about perception on that level, because it's not just reflections. Every single perception you have is tainted and twisted. When you see yourself in the mirror, it's a reflection. and You can never actually see yourself the way others see you. You can never hear yourself the way other people hear you. You know, every time you listen to recording yourself, it sounds different because you're getting all this internal echoes and acoustics that changes the way you hear yourself. Your body likes to ignore things it sees all the time. So our feelings of ourselves are muted because our body's like, I know what the hell that is. I'm not going to spend too much time giving a damn about it. Same with taste, smell. You right now have this constant rhythmic sound going on your body. Ba-doom, ba-doom, ba-doom. But you never hear it because your body has learned to ignore it, to cancel it out. Want to bet? <laughs> Some of us have problems with that particular one. You have moments where you notice it, but not always. Well, it's funny because there's those rooms that, you know, the absolute silence rooms where it, it, they will mess with you. There's no sound anywhere. And you walk in and most people can't last a minute in them. Mm-mm. And, you know, in my brain, you know, which also believes I can wrestle dares, is like, I can <laughs> last forever in that. And I'm sure I would walk in there and just be like, nope, and just nope right the fuck out of it. I don't know if Fantastic Fest, the film fest in Austin, still does the Fantastic Fights that they used to do on one night where they would have like two people box like that was the event where Uwe Boll like boxed his critics and stuff. Once we get like post vaccine and we can actually get out to Fantastic Fest as a publicity stunt, we're going to have Jacob fight a bear for Fantastic yes! Fights. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can it be the Midsummer Bear? That'd be great. No, look, <laughs> I have always been very specific about the kind of bear I could beat up. And everybody keeps saying, oh, it's a grizzly bear. It's not, man. It's a relative-sized black bear I could take. Shasta. That's all I'm saying. Shasta, you're I'm not saying it. I could beat up polar bears or shardic. <laughs> Shasta has solved it. Shasta has solved your problem. You're going you. to beat a bear. You're going to yep. beat the midsummer bear. We're going to no, get a look. guy, drug him up so he's unconscious, and dress him up in a bear, and you can kick his ass. <laughs> I know some people. Yep. Oh, no, that I'm cool with. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> I Still the best line in Midsummer. Just not going to address the bear? All right. <laughs> yeah, so at that night, Marie wakes to the dog barking at the office door. And as she goes to get to the door, it kind of bites her. Because it's just that perturbed. It's like, don't touch me. Uh, she tries to get in. And Alan tells her to go away. He's working. He finally opens the door because she's hearing him talk to someone. She's like, who is that? And he goes, no one. Didn't you notice the dog barking? And he just gets pissed at her. They start fighting. And then we cut to the next morning. Yeah, we transition from here to Alan saying, "Yo, I've got a golf session with a client," which is like, "Oh, fuck this guy." <laughs> even, even if it's not the mirror, yeah, fuck off. To be fair, up until this point, he's been kind of a decent father and, and husband. Uh, it's like he's clearly ish. starting to degrade. He's not a bad dad. I just I don't get 
so even from from the beginning, I just don't, I get this. Okay. And he even says it, you know, we've got a new company, you know, I've got a lot of stuff that he's on the phone and people are fucking running around the house screaming. I'd be yelling at my kids, put myself on mute if that were happening in my house. But he just feels so neutral dad to me. Like he is a good dad. Obviously the kids love him. He has a good relationship with his wife, but I don't feel overly enamored with him as a father figure like he's not a great dad he's not a great dad like he's not like (laughs) playing baseball with him he's working he's always in his office and it seems to me like all he wants to do is be in his office working and when the mirror starts kicking in and his personality starts degrading he is leaning heavily on work and being in his office and that's where all these things are happening because that's where the mirror is yeah it's his workaholic weak point to be fair if you had to say great dad, it's probably your first image is not golf playing software engineer. Not, so not to be mean or anything, but. No, not even close. Half our listeners are like, hey, fuck you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Please send them your comments because I don't have to read them. Yes. <laughs> Scary stuff pod on Twitter. Um, yeah, this is so he goes off for his golf game. Mason, the yellow lab has decided, all right, biting people isn't getting enough attention. Time for poop. And it starts urinating and pooping all over the house, which Marie is constantly scrubbing. There's more of this in the script to which she has one of my favorite lines as Mason is barking outside the offices. You know what? Go in there and shit on the CEO's carpet. And sends him in there. And Mason goes in. Mason does not come out. She tells the kids that Mason's been grounded. And so they're waiting outside. Alan comes back from his golf excursion, opens up the office. No dog. This is where we get transition back to the present. And Tim is trying to explain this phenomenon by what he calls the fuzzy trace theory, which is, you know, the idea that basically we have vague impressions of things. And, and when you put them in proximity to other things, you, that's where you form your concepts. But he has memories that Kaylee doesn't. And Tim's recollection is that, you know, Mason was sick, hence the issues with his bowels and bladder. He has a recollection of her being on the phone talking to someone. They say, oh, is Mason coming home? She said, uh, no, he's grounded. The script <laughs> has an additional sequence where she and her husband are on the couch that night drinking wine. And he said, you told the kids he was grounded? She said, I didn't know what to say. I <laughs> and so, yeah, this is where he busts out his fuzzy trace thing and says, you know, you're saying all this thing about this thing making dogs disappear. Look, rips the cloth over. The case, dog, still here. <laughs> Boston Terrier, still there. To which Kaylee comes at him with the receipts or lack thereof, because Tim is also trying to explain everything by saying, you know, dad was just a philanderer. And <laughs> Kaylee comes and says, there's no receipts for anything, no credit card, anything. I talked to all his co-workers about the possibility of him having an affair. And they also. As <laughs> where Tim says, all right, you know what? Fuck it. And lets the dog out. And Boston Terrier makes a beeline for the kitchen, scrapes out at the porch door. Tim lets it out. Dog goes scurrying away. So here's the happy ending, which we get early. Yep. Dog makes it out. <laughs> the Boston Terrier is fine. No, it's not. So let, let's go over that real quick. So they research the kill switch. They talk about the affair. While they're arguing, she notices the temp has gone up three degrees and the phone lines are probably down. They get a dial tone, but they're static on him when he checks it. When Tim lets it out, she says it's sick. He says it's okay. She says, I've been alone this whole time. He's like, we can get you the help you need. We're going to be okay. She starts crying. She's having this breakdown moment where he's just about convinced her that this is all bullshit and we need to give up and just go. And he says, he's sorry. Let's get out of here. Like, where would we go? He goes anywhere you want. They go back into the office and everything has been moved around. 
The cameras that were in the front are pointing into each other. The plants are dead. And Kaylee is ecstatic because this is the validation she's been waiting for. Which is the wrong reaction to (laughs) telling you you're going to die. Whereas Tim is floored. Tim is just floored. He's like, crap, this is so real. (laughs) So she grabs the cameras that are on the wall and starts going over all her data. And the wall-mounted cameras, and this is the point of no return for me. Yeah. (laughs) The wall-mounted cameras show them rearranging the room while they were doing that whole argument. They were grabbing the cameras and facing each other. They were the ones doing everything that's moved was them while they thought they were having an argument in the other room. And this, for me, is the end of the movie. Because up till now, (laughs) it can throw illusions at you. It can make you think you saw something. It can convince you, please, for the love of God, don't hurt me. That's fine. We now have it actively controlling your body, mm-hmm. moving you as it wants like a puppet while you have zero conscious experience of it. At this point, they should have no expectation of ever leaving this fucking house alive. Nope. Nope. Anytime it wants you to do something, you're just going to do it while you see whatever it wants you to see. Welcome to your death. Kaylee at least greets it with a smile she sees all this footage and she's so excited (laughs) look how fucked we are and and here's the problem if you're not paying attention yay at least the dog got away if you are paying attention while they're rearranging the room having the argument which should have happened after the dog left already that cage is still covered Mm. it has not been uncovered that dog didn't get out it (laughs) ate it (laughs) that dog is gone (laughs) they never find the pets never find the pets which is a little weird if you think about it because everybody else like they find the corpses and stuff and they're all in horrible shape the dogs are just gone it just eats dogs it just just eats dogs dogs. it doesn't eat people it fucks them strange it's mean Uh, again while i could argue to some degree it's malevolence level left and right and that its intent is just feeding it's not fucking dumb. It knows no one will question a missing dog. A body that's just up and gone and in succession over and over again could be problematic. I think it leaves the bodies to protect itself. Ooh. So, Which is another point in my argument that it, it has a consciousness. It's not just a, a shark feeding. To a degree. I think it's more of like a dolphin consciousness than a human consciousness. But Dolphins are smarter than us, man. You've seen Douglas eh. Adams movies. <laughs> <laughs> Still, though, it's mean. Just eat dogs, man. Just leave the dogs alone. Although, no, they never say if it eats cats. So maybe maybe it's a cat mirror. We didn't get a montage of Kaylee trying out other pets, like goldfish, cats, gerbils, hamsters. <laughs> so Tim goes to first bone, and she warns him to stay outside the radius of its influence. <laughs> Looking at the plants, it appears to be 30 feet. Past 30 feet, the plants are okay. That being said, you'll never know if you left 30 feet, because it won't. it'll tell you exactly what you want to know. Ugh. Anyway, so he quote unquote walks away 30 feet and calls his doctor, but it won't complete the call. Kaylee snaps him out of it and he hasn't even left the house. He thought he was outside on the phone call. He was still in there and they are so I just I just have one note here. So fucked all bold. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (sighs) And she's still excited by this. She's thrilled. She thinks this is great. We're going to win. She has not done the math. Made you point. I'm sorry. It's not a kill switch like it's grounded into some circuit underground you personally can't get to. 
It can control your body. You <laughs> can reset that switch as often mm-hmm. as it damn wants. All right. Yep. This movie is over. <laughs> At this point, it's just mean. <laughs> yep. And she has this renewed energy after all that happens and mm-hmm. she's running around and she's going back over her security stuff and checking lights and whatever. And why, why are you happy? I get that you're right. I, well, I like being right too, but I also like staying alive. I don't think it's just being right. I think it's twofold. It's vindication. Well, vindication is nice, but also I think on some level, I think Tim coming around is huge to her. Come die with me, sir. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, it's like he betrays her by not believing his memories and not remembering his promise and not sticking to the plan. And she's been alone. Like she thought she was had him, but then felt very alone. And now in this moment, they're in it together again. For another couple of seconds. Yeah, Great. for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she can't even be sure of that. Nope. You know, that's the like I, I get what you're saying, and I think you're right, mm-hmm. but yeah, if she if she had spent more than shit there's some natural human (laughs) hubris there too that no no matter how flawed our perceptions are we always seem to assume they're real so it's hard to give up on all of reality (laughs) (laughs) what she didn't tell the mirror about was the six tons of c4 in the basement (laughs) that would be a good plan (laughs) would have been certainly would have been my heartbeat is hooked up to a dead man's switch my heart stops beating. This place goes up. Every hour in the hour, it's a call from the guys saying, I have the shot. Should I take it? <laughs> a little laser scope on the middle of the mirror. <laughs> so yeah, we go back to one lovely memory they have, which is their mother fixing them dinner of burnt toast <laughs> and cereal. As she drinks red wine. As the kids are just solemnly stirring, you know, their cereals. Their mother's just very clearly disturbed sipping at red wine. <laughs> What's with the shitty dinner, mommy? Hey, 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 look, Wine Spectator said the bold, robust bouquet of the 97 Hikes Vineyard Cabernet is best paired with burnt toast, marital despair, and frosted flakes. And God damn it, they were right. <laughs> <laughs> and this is another, talked about how good Karen Gian is earlier, but Katie Sackhoff is, yes. is so good with the little facial bits. Yep. Because this is the bit where she turns to Kaylee and says, tell me more about the woman in the office and just the little twitches in her face. And this is... <laughs> Where, the, unfortunately, their dinner table was too wide for Kaylee to kick Tim's leg under it. When yeah. Tim inadvertently says, says yeah, I've dumb, seen her. Dumb. And seen her on the stairwell. And He specifically I, says, I think she lives in the office. Yes. He's like, ooh. And he's right. Yup. Well, maybe not lives, <laughs> but exists in the office. And this is when Marie goes into the office and finds a paper scribbled with Marisol's name over and over again. How middle school of him. <laughs> she knocks all the stuff off the desk in anger but while cleaning it up she gets angry again and throws something in the mirror at the last second it pulls her aim to the side and misses the lights flicker it growls at her <laughs> yes you come at the king you best not miss <laughs> exactly she goes ramrod straight standing up and it just kind of pulls her in and stares her down her reflection giving this kind of ominous grim and then it shows her belly which is like the C-section scars opened all kind of pussy and nasty silvered eyes. It's like, ah, gross. Yeah. Yeah, Oh, the weeping cesarean wound is awful. Now there's a shot after this of the kids in bed, hearing a noise downstairs, which they come out to investigate. And then their mother, Marie, who's now severely mentally distraught from this mirror goes after them. Do you think she's snapped or she's possessed? 
There's not really any evidence that Samira possesses people, but her devolution into what she becomes is pretty sudden, and that's a pretty big break from reality. Yeah, I think there's a degree of possession involved, specifically yes. because of a sequence we've got coming up with Alan when he walks in on her trying to attack the kids. He goes to make a phone call. They're static, and all of a sudden his perspective changes. Yeah, because he was outside the house, so he's outside its range of influence, and he was kind of normal for a moment. He was himself, mm-hmm. and when he comes into the house, it takes over again. Yeah. And if you listen to the soundtrack, you can actually hear a little bit of what the mirror is saying. Like yeah. in the sequence where he's making the phone call, you can hear it saying, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And these repeated specific phrases. So it's kind of like a mental override, basically, where it just kind of overwrites the existing personality. Thing. Like with the fingernail. And it's telling yep. him, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't yeah, hurt. It doesn't hurt. Like, yep. it fucking does hurt. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Still mad. All right. I'm going to take your word for it, mirror. I'm going to keep going down this road. <laughs> but no, so there's a brief sequence before Marie comes out where the kids are just sitting on the bed and then they go out to investigate a noise. There was originally a brief dialogue bit here, which I thought was interesting, which is it says distraught. Kaylee sits on the edge of Tim's bed before he can stop her. She instantly feels something wet on her hand, investigates and sees the bed is wet. Tim looks away, embarrassed little Tim. Sorry. I don't like to go to the bathroom at night. That weird lady is always on the stairs. Little Kaylee. I've seen her on the stairs too. Little Tim. You lied to mom, little Kaylee. I didn't want to make her sadder. Little Tim, that lady lives in the mirror. Little Kaylee, what are you talking about? Nobody can live in a mirror. Little Tim, she's not the only one. And then they jump at the sound of the scream and head downstairs. I am so glad they took that the fuck out. (laughs) I got chills just listening to you, man. Yeah. (laughs) Nope. So instead they go down to investigate the noise. And say, hey, mom, how you doing? And mom says, yeah, and <laughs> comes after the kids. She's gone very feral, just nonverbal, just bolting after the kids. They're able to make it in the bedroom, shut the door. This wasn't the only echo, but there's a lot of echoes in Hill House of this movie. Yeah. Mm. But the way the mom chases him felt very, very similar to the way it goes down in Hill House. Yeah, this particular bit. Later in the film, too, I, I had a note that was like, man, it, Katie Sackhoff's got a good Sadako walk because there's a bit yes, later where she's on all yes. fours and she's doing yep. like the Sadako yep. thing, like yes. joints up and all that shit. I was like, oh yeah, that's pretty just, good. It's just a note that a lot of the stuff that's in Hill House, you can see sort of its origins here yep. or at least similarities in, in what's, you know, what works here works in Hill House as well in terms of what, you know, these horrific images and impulses. Yeah, there's absolutely the root of Hill House in here, but clearly Marie hasn't seen Hereditary because she would have known if she saw Hereditary, you got to put the forehead into it if you want to get through that door. <laughs> Marie's just using her hands. Because we get the thump, 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 but it's just her hands. I was like, no, you got to put your head into it. You got to put your head Come into on. it. Yeah. I am not watching that movie. Thank you. Oh. Don't, don't. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Shasta, Shasta, Shasta. What? You don't have to watch it, but if you do... We have to be there. <laughs> Noted. Save that one where we can watch it with you. Yes. Post plague times. Got it. Yep. So Alan comes inside, finds Marie trying to claw her way into the kids' room. Turns out Alan has a pretty good rear naked choke as he puts his wife yeah. in a sleeper hold. Doesn't even fucking think about it. He just does it. Yeah, I get evidence for Alan being kind of fucked up because you could argue this is pre-mirror because he hasn't made the call yet where the mirror actively yep. takes over his brain. This is just so, him. Yeah. <laughs> he just instantly puts his wife in a sleeper hold. The kids come out and find the mother unconscious as he's like cradling her with still got her in the sleeper hold. 
I, I wish there had been a bit where Caleb was like, Dad, is mom okay? She's she, she fine, kiddo. Hey, do daddy a favor. Can you come over here and lift your mom's arm up and let it drop three times? Because I want to make sure she doesn't Hulk Hogan on me on the third drop and Hulk up and... <laughs> We're not out of the wrestling episode yet, damn it. Yeah, Alan, this is where he makes his phone call. Try and call 911. The... Mirror overrides him and we don't hear it, but essentially says, Hey, instead of calling 911, why don't you get the dog chain that you're not using anymore because I ate your dog and <laughs> put that to use? And sure enough, and then Kaylee gets a brief glimpse of her dad coming up. Is everything okay to go to bed? <laughs> and his demeanor is completely flipped. So now we transition back to present day when the light bulbs start going out. And this takes us into a sequence which I can't believe I forgot about. I don't know how I forgot that this scene existed. It's just the apple scene. Brother and sister say, all right, take these bulbs, start going through and start replacing them. Brother and sister going through the house, swapping bulbs out. And Not okay. Kaylee is working on one particular bulb and starts to screws a new bulb in. It instantly burns out to which she goes nice, which immediately took me back to Final Destination with Devin Sawa pulling up the rusty fish hook and going, tetanus, nice try. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love that. That the mirror's just a dick and instantly burns the (laughs) thing out. And then, yep, so in between putting these bulbs in, Kaylee has been taking bites from an apple, puts the bulb in, it stays on, turns around, goes to bite, and it's a decidedly not wet crunch you hear. Right. So upsetting. This is the worst scene visually of the movie, I think. This is like a top three worst scene in Flanagan film history for me yeah I just, I, i'm so oh. glad he hates hands and not tongues I'm just oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it transitions we hear this shrill crunching sound we see bits of white glass land on the hardwood floor and then it cuts to a shot of just karen gian's eyes all you can see is like that top of the bulb yep yes. and then dead center of the frame is that little screw base of the bulb which my next note is just <laughs> so gross. because the scene after this is she pulls it away and she spits a little blood out and sprays it across the glass. You would think that would be where most films stop. Not Oculus. Nope. 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 She's got to go fishing around for that shit oh. in her mouth and pulls a shard out. Mm, it's a big one too. Thankfully, Tim interrupts this and says, what's going on sis? And she realizes that, you know, she did in fact bite the apple and what she's holding isn't a shard of glass. It's a shard of apple, which she sticks back in her mouth. And then says to Tim, maybe we should stay together. Yeah, no shit. You should stay together. <laughs> I mean, not that it really makes a fucking difference, but it won't hurt. And this is, of course, where you hear the mirror in the background shout, that's what you get for fucking with me. <laughs> not really, but that's what I keep hearing every time. I At this point, we flash back to the past with Tim watching TV, watching cartoons. And then the TV flashes, and I didn't see it. I know you actually did some stop frame, uh, but I looked it up. I, it wasn't stop frame. I wish it was stop frame, man. I was watching this on a fire stick. I had to just keep trying to pause it in the right spot. This shit took me 10 minutes to get pictures of the two of the stills to figure out what it was. There are actually three frames it shows in the static. Without pausing, you really can't see them. But one is actually a close-up of adult Kaylee. There's a second one, another second close-up of adult Kaylee. And the third one's a close-up of adult Kaylee with her mouth open as though she is screaming. And then it just goes full static. Now, this starts to beg the question. It's really kind of messes not just with the character's perceptions but now yours of this film it's very easy to question is this an actual thing that happened to young tim or is this a corrupted vision 
Tim is having of his past self because the past and the future really start to blend at this point with them having these visual flashbacks that they're a part of. And the entity is clearly hurting them into recreating their past events. They are Mm -hmm. working in tandem with the past and the present and they're hiding the same places. They're running to the same places. They're doing the same things. And this is intentional. This is not coincidental on any level. The mirror is having a feast of these two by making them relive their past traumas in the exact same way that happened prior. Also because their parents are in the mirror now. Yes. Right. So it's a very strong question that's never actually answered of does this thing transcend space time and their future selves are actually to some level interacting with their past selves or is this just there anytime you see future and past merge it's the present selves perceptions that are being messed with to that level where the past and present are one and the same in their current existence i think it's the latter i I I lean towards the second one yeah Yeah, Yeah. i I think they're reliving everything yes it's, it's the slightly corrupted version i agree very much so i don't think this thing transcends time and is like bringing future no, selves because if past. it transcends time and space this mirror is god and we're not ready to have that conversation <laughs> this mirror is the fucking simulation while i'm glad to see we're all on the same page it clearly doesn't make that 100 percent clear in the film necessarily and i like that i like that it's it's making you doubt it's forcing you to go i'm not entirely sure what's going on here but with intent it's not bad movie bad editing i don't understand what's going on it's this is what you're actually getting. I can't give you any more details because this is the whole of it. And you're like, oh, that's that's rough. <laughs> you can interpret things a few different ways. But yeah, it's it, from the thematic perspective for this finale is, yeah, it, where it's about grappling with grief and grappling with trauma and things becoming you know, coming to the surface to the point that they are literally intertwined and inseparable from each other, past and present. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also the practical element of the movie does demonstrate to an extent that what the mirror does basically as it's gaining more and more juice is it's able to pull more and more things from its bag of tricks and bring those things to the fore but it does it in a chronological order yep because the reason marisol is the first person to appear to alan because she's the last victim yep she's the most recent victim so same thing for the kids they initially all the hallucinations are based around it can make them see a bunch of different shit. Obviously it can make them do anything, but the manifestations you get, the specific specter manifestations are their parents because they're the most recent. Then yep. they see Marisol again. And then we get to the finale and it's just bested up the whole cavalcade of victims. The way I found myself describing this thing by the end is that the mirror is a nest of vampires. <laughs> I'm serious because it doesn't just eat these things and toss these people and toss them aside as a used food item. Everybody it eats, it envelops into itself in some manner while the bodies are left behind the souls or the personages or, or the identities to some degree are absorbed by this thing. And it's not just it messing with people. It's specifically going owns these identities now inside of itself. And yeah, you're right. The ones that are the most recent, are the most fresh, the most still energized, the most still alive to some degree. And that's why it's easiest for them to come to the forefront initially. That's why as their kids, Marisol is the first one. But as it gets stronger, as it gets more power, more and more of these entities can come out chronologically. It's not until 
jumping ahead a little bit, at some point, while this thing may have been responsible for 40, 50, hundreds of victims, it's specifically using the victims she listed off in her list against them because they have connections to them. Like It makes that choice. It, it, this is the part that's going to affect you mentally the most. This is a weak point I can exploit and I'm going to use against you. And the more powerful it gets, the more that list shows up. And I really like that. It's really well done. It could also just be it needs more energy. And as it gets more energy, it can release more things. Yeah, it's more mouths, <laughs> essentially. It starts feeding. It grows. It blooms. eats everything in its radius. And when the food goes away, it curls back in on itself. Almost like a Venus flytrap. It just it grows and eats whatever's around it. And then when the food goes away, it just kind of goes stagnant again and, re- and relaxes. You know how you have those movies like the Jason versus Freddy and the, the Grudge Ghost versus the Ring Ghost? I kind of want to see this mirror versus the Arcadian. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing crossovers that'd be kind of a fun one <laughs> which would be apt because they're all about lenses mm-hmm. and they're all about viewing things for through a particular prism be it virtual or physical and yeah the arcadian of course being the name of the monster in the benson and moorhead films which if you listen to our eighth episode you'll learn more about that absolutely but the arcadian in getting to the possibility of the oculus mirror being a bit of a malevolent mindful dick in this is now we get an example of its dickishness much like the arcadian is quite of a dick in benson moorhead movies yep. because now we get the flashback we reveal the mirror is low-key starving these kids by keeping their dad so occupied that the fridge is basically empty to which kayla confronts her father and says yeah yeah, yeah I'll, I'll get to it and he's just entranced by the mirror this is where the kids say, all right, time to bust out the yellow pages, start going through <laughs> making phone calls, and everyone they talk to is the same voice. And again, credit to this movie for having the kids think things through and have somewhat sensible reactions to things like, all right, dad's fucked. Time to look for outside help. No one in the yellow pages will help us. Time to call in Bob. Anyone <laughs> should have learned, never bet on Bob nope. because Bob is fucking useless. So she brings in her neighbor Bob to confront Alan on this. And Bob's like, you know, I hear some fucked up shits going on. Alan's like, hey, let's go golfing sometime. And said, Bob, don't mind if I do. Bye, Kaylee. And peace is out. <laughs> and it's fucking useless. And in Flanagan style, the whole time he's having this conversation with Bob, his right hand's up on the doorframe, covered to just blood from all his nails being removed and gnawed yep. away at and pulled off. It's like, ah, damn it. Yeah, we'll need to meet on the back nine at some point. I can't exactly hold a club right now because my fingers are all (laughs) fucked up. I do love the kids are watching this whole thing from the stairs. And as Bob leaves and Alan turns around and shoots them a glare like it's not a thing where the kids look terrified. Kaylee has this great, yeah, fuck you, dad, look from the top of the (laughs) stairs, which I love. But this is also where we circle back to the present. And now we get another setup for one thing the mirror likes to do, which is if you put me in a position of I can endure harm, I'm going to use you as a meat shield. Yep. Because Kaylee and Tim both wake up to find themselves standing in the path of the anchor. <sighs> While that is more distinct and clear cut later, I don't think that's the intent here. Because we see a couple of scenes where, at least one, where the dad is just standing the same way she is against the mirror. Where it is clearly... that They show that later, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. where it, it, it is... The same position. It, it has a tendency to arrange its victims where they're standing with their back to the mirror and it just leeches their life force off of them. I think it was feeding on her. Yeah, well, there's a shot coming up, too, with Alan. The kids are peeking into the office to see Alan. And this is a jump scare with Mary Saul with the silver eyes coming around. But before she comes around the doorframe, you can very briefly glimpse Marisol, who has a distended mouth 
who literally has her mouth planted on the back of Alan's skull. Yep. Literally siphoning life force off of him. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So in Alan's case, it's absolutely a proximity thing of makes it easier to siphon life force. But it's also the mirror also setting up very clearly. Remember where I put your ass? This shit's coming back. (laughs) (laughs) May not be the mirror's intent, but Mike Flanagan is telling you how this is going to go down. Yup. So the lights have continued to go the fuck out. So now it's all right. Time for the emergency lanterns, which all have this amazing ghostly blue lighting effect that they give out. This is where Kaylee ends up inadvertently knocking over one of the potted plants. Shards of pottery go everywhere. This is where she pulls out another one, says, ah, nice tricks. And she looks and because she can see shards of pottery in front of her, pulls out her cell phone. And what she sees in front of her is not visible in the cell phone. Cell phone is just registering a plain hardwood floor. And which, again, no reason to trust that shit. But mm-hmm. <laughs> but she's picked up one of these shards of pottery and is fingering it. When all of a sudden she's alerted to a noise behind her. It's mom. And Maria <sighs> looking decidedly worse for wear, in which Kaylee, great reflexes, puts the broken shard of pottery to use and then cut. Not mom. Michael. It's Michael. <laughs> I had totally forgotten about him at this point. Yeah. Like, isn't he supposed to call? Soon? Like I said, forgettable Superman. Right. <laughs> yes. And this is so mean. This is so messed up. Because she's just killed him, and she's upset over it. Eh. And she's like, no, it can't be. Tim, is this real? And he's just kind of like, like, uh, it looks real to me. And But then there's this call. And yeah. she gets the call, and it's Michael. And he's just talking to her. He's like, I'm just checking in. And she's like, all right, cool. You know, the plate's not real. It's a throwback to the plate I saw when mom was tied up in the bedroom. So it's not real. Mm-hmm. At which point, the light pans over. And it's not a plate shard. It's the pot shard. And that's when she uses her phone to confirm, yeah, that's Michael's dead body. <laughs> you just killed him. Sucks for Michael. I will say I'm I'm glad the movie eliminated Michael early because if <laughs> Michael had survived the movie, then I would have demanded a scene where they explained to him, the cops show up and explain the ending of the movie to him. They say, here's what happened. And he's, oh God, that's, wait, what? Her <laughs> <laughs> crazy brother hooked up a, 40 pound anchor. <laughs> I'm too stupefied to be mad. Tim has the right idea at this point. Tim's response is we're getting out of here. Yep. And they go outside too late. And yeah, at this point it's, they think they're outside and trying to get beyond its radius of influence. Real quick note here. It mentioned the Newton brothers earlier. They constantly have these very carpenter esque pulsing drones as you know, kind of like heartbeat esque electronic pulses going also has like this woodwind drone that comes in a bit which really sounds like the opening drone from the opening of phantasm one but just terrific score work here particularly comes through in this sequence when they're standing outside and they're trying to review what to do makes a call to 911 and tim's like you know we got a problem i, I need police and an ambulance at such and such hawthorne there's one point though i think it, i don't think it's the first call i think he calls a second time and he's like yeah called for help and and they go you have to have your father call the doctor will be there tomorrow. I'm like, oh, yeah. oh, nice throwback. Tomorrow. Oh, it's great. Timbo. But here's the problem. So at this point, they're outside and the light and, and Tim's like, we're fine. We're going to be good. We just wait this thing out. The timer goes off and we watch it die. At which point <laughs> they see the window open and it's them standing in front of the mirror. And OK, there are two <laughs> things you can do here. There's only one answer and they don't do it. So here's the problem. Either A. Yes, that is you in front of the mirror, at which point it doesn't matter what you do. You're fucked (laughs) because it's got you. Have a nice day. 
or you're actually outside. Don't look back. Keep walking. Yes. <laughs> yes. And when that's the only option you have to maybe survive, you take it. But they don't. They decide that maybe somehow they can go in and save themselves. They're like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> of course, at that point, you get all the way to a hotel, you ride the elevator, elevator door opens, and you're still in the asylum. So, you know. <laughs> yes, but you know what? That's okay, because at least you tried. <laughs> a new Grave Encounters was going to come up at some point in this. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Grave Encounters. Well, but I mean, you're, you're right. Yeah, at that point, you, you know, you take off running. You're like, all right, fine, fuck you. Call its bluff, and they don't call its bluff. They don't. Take the 50-50 odds instead of the zero. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Like, you know you're dead if you go back in the house. At least this if you have a chance. At least go see if Bob is still there. You know, maybe he still lives next door. Just punch him in the mouth. (laughs) Send you back to your dad. (laughs) You know what? That's the messed up ending I would have done, is that they they come to that conclusion. They're like, we got 50-50 odds. We should just go. And they go. And then, like... They check later, and the mirror's broken. Michael's taken away. They end up dealing with years of court and all this stuff to, you know, to deal with it. And they're just trying to get through this. And just as they're starting to feel like maybe they're going to be okay and life can go on, they wake up in the fucking room still because they've never left. Yep. And this whole thing is a goddamn dream. Oh, some Ooh. Jacob's Ladder shit. <laughs> yeah, baby. I got chills just thinking of that. <laughs> I didn't just ended it. All right, let's run. And they start walking down the street. Bam, credits. <laughs> they just wake up in front of a fireplace with Tim telling Kaylee, yeah, mom and dad died in a car wreck. Go upside and pack. We'll go on a trip. And he starts playing his acoustic guitar. She goes upstairs to pack and then just something leaps out from the Oculus mirror and pulls her through. Boy, let's go full phantasm. Yeah, the mirror leaps out of the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Here, damn! <laughs> it's appropriate because we do get the mirror bending physics a little bit here in a moment, um, with visuals anyway, with someone reaching through it here in a little bit. At this point, they really start mixing the past and the present. Things start syncing up. It's so well put together. Yeah. It's brilliant. Going up the stairs, kid coming. I mean, it's just, it's so unsettling. It's And it's so telling both stories at the same time in such an efficient and creepy and scary way like i mentioned the editing before the editing in this movie is marvelous the the way they've mm-hmm. just blocked out every scene is marvelous it's just so because it's a hard way to tell a story where you're telling two stories at once that are basically overlapping fun note it was difficult for them to make it <laughs> because the storylines are so similar and so overlapping that when they wrote up the screenplay they ended up having to do all the past scenes in italics italics to make sure it was clear (laughs) what was past and what was future because it starts blurring hardcore like (laughs) it's it's hard for us to watch it was hard for them to make (laughs) yeah reading the script it's like if they hadn't done that it would have been nigh impossible to just follow because it's uh, of the it starts being like every other line basically is you know regular print in italics so it's really cool to see it in effect yeah again just gives you another appreciation for the amount of thought put into you know having these things converge and intertwine so tightly so yeah, dovetails so well now yeah structurally this movie is really terrific it, mm-hmm. it's terrific in a lot of ways but structure being a big one but yeah they make the horrendously awful decision to not take the coin flip odds and go back into the house so this is where the lights are out and now we're in full dark gray green hue at this point just everything has this kind of sickly dark green seep to it and interspliced with the parental apparitions are going around with the Superman three eyes gleaming and also the apparition of 
their father, Alan, is moving around with the gleaming of the gun. So it's all these slight silver gleams just speckled throughout the, the darkness of the house. This is where we get another glimpse of Marisol, played by Kate Siegel, who is speaking with Rory Cochran's voice yeah. as she walks towards them. Again, got those silver eyes going and intertwining with the past and present. We get a sequence, another sequence. It's like, how did I forget about this? Which is a sequence of their mother, Maria, who Alan has shackled to the wall. She is just covered in blood, covered in scratches. Script makes it clear that she apparently like, ravaged her own face. So it's like more yeah. like the face stuff is more damaging. But then they double down on the gross. They're like, okay, we can't mess your face up. We're going to have you actually try to eat a piece of plate. And while she's doing that, they pan down and you just see it's, a piece oh, of oh, 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 something yep. fall off. It's like, oh my God. Yep. Oh. Yes, it's just yep. gloop. It is black. This, I feel, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here with examples. Feel free. I feel Flanagan got less blatant with his gore and physical effects as he goes on. He becomes more subtle, more nuanced, more honed. Like his craft really comes together well. Whereas this first horror movie of his, he just goes for it. Yeah. And he just like, it's like, how can I make this really mess with you? You know, bop, bop, bop. Every, every picture, every special effect. It just, it was really grody and hard to watch with the hand and... Oh. It's it's tricky, like in terms of actual screen time, this movie, it, it might have a little bit more, but it's still kind of punctuated by very specific, like Gerald's game is punctuated by the degloving scene. Dr. Sleep is punctuated by the degloving scene. Dr. Sleep also has the horrendous death of the young child, which is... Yeah, they have so, the one single moment that's rough. Yeah, they have like one, two, and this one still has like one, has a little bit more, but it's still kind of one, two, where I think that comes more into account and something Flanagan's talked about in interviews is how he started in very much a mode of nihilistic horror and then kind of in tandem to the development of his relationship with Kate Siegel, his horror starts becoming decidedly more optimistic. Mm -hmm. like when you look at absentia, absentia is as is about as dark an ending as you can get. Yeah. It is. Yep. And then there's this one, which has again, about as dark an ending as you can get. And then beginning with before awake, they start ratcheting towards, you know, not thoroughly optimistic, but certainly far from the straight nihilism yep. that we get with, with absentia and Oculus. Yeah. Before I wake goes the other way. It is as dark a beginning as you can get. And ends okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or somnia. I guess we should call it somnia. I feel like that's more true. So yeah. At this point, Alan has come in initially. It looks like he's going to shoot Maria. And instead he just quietly just unhooks her. He leaves kids are again, we're just constantly moving between past and present at this point, but the kids are in hold up in a room hyping themselves up, and Kaylee's like, all right, I got a golf club. I'm going to run interference. I need you to make a ring for the door. It's interesting, because I think they make a crucial mistake here. Because the older Kaylee and Tim are up in the room, and Tim's like, you're right, it's trying to keep us away. He's like, we were going to go in that room and try to mess things up, and it responded. Therefore, that's obviously a good move. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We can beat this thing if we do that. Oops. And I think that's completely wrong. I think it's like, no, 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 no. You haven't seen the script. I remember how this played out. You start in this room and then we'll proceed with the story. <laughs> it's like, oh. They're like, not dog. You are in this room. You just don't know where you are. Oh. Yeah. It's like, you know. This is not about it, it getting scared or concerned on any level. It's like, no, no, this is my game. Yep. And this is where you need to be. Motherfucker, all rooms are this room. <laughs> 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 
you have never been upstairs. <laughs> so no, instead we get the kids who are like, all right, Tim's going to make a beeline for the office where the mirror is housed while Kaylee runs interference. Really great moment of them doing a countdown and Kaylee's counting down and, and in between is says one. And then she says, I love you. And two is like, make sure and she punctuates everything with, this really heartfelt the, even the kids are great in this the yes. child actors yep. are, are terrific in this and they hit the number three got a great golf swing beans the hell out of her mom with this golf club <laughs> yeah i have a note here it's like uh kaylee slices it <laughs> <laughs> kaylee then takes off and and there's this pursuit sequence between her and maria this is where we get the sequence i mentioned earlier with katie sackoff having the good sadako crawl because she's crawling yeah. and mm-hmm. clamoring yep. over kaylee Interesting fact, Katie Sackhoff put her all into this. Yeah. Like she's apparently an incredibly physical actor. When she was wearing the collar and chain to the wall, she threw herself against the chain oh. and ended up having multiple bruises around her neck. Ah. And every time there were like scuffles or whatnot and like smashing things, she walked off the set almost every day during a physical encounter with bruises on her body oh, because she, she just did not hold back and you can see it. Her yeah. acting is fantastic. Yep. She really loses herself in the role and does a great job of not being herself, not really being human anymore. She's amazing in this movie. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah, it's it's rough. And that comes through here when she's throttling her daughter and has her you know, on the brink of passing out when all of a sudden it seems like her actual personality registers for a second, realizes what she's done, lets her grip go slack, starts to lean up putting herself in prime position to get shot from the back by her husband who just <laughs> plugs her in the back. And then as she collapses, Kayla goes running. Alan possessed by the mirror shoots Marie twice more to just ensure she stays down. And we got an extended chase sequence of Alan with the gun chasing the kids. Now, when he shoots Marie, I believe this is where we see him bordered by three entities now. This is where the lesser glass players start to come out in earnest. Uh, yeah. yeah, He's yeah. there. Marisol comes up and we see two other victims of the lesser glass. We have Robert Clancy, the railroad tycoon, and Tobin Cap, who's the one who starved to death in his room. And Tobin Cap, the character Tobin Cap, is played by James Flanagan, Mike Flanagan's brother. Hey! <laughs> nice. From here, Alan is, this is where the lesser glass players are coming out of the woodwork. Alan ends up chasing you know, the kids and ends up getting them into the, the office in front of the mirror. This is where we get the explicit callback to the original short film. Kids are trying to reason with their father, you know, saying, you don't have to do this. And he has the line taken directly from the short. I've met my demons and they are many. I've seen the devil and he is me. This mantra that the mirror has. And again, goes right to throttling poor Kaylee again. Two parents in a row going right for a throat. Well, he was going to shoot them, but uh, the gun gets knocked out of his hand with the golf club. Yeah, so instead he goes for the throttling. Tim intervenes. Kaylee's able to get out. And this is where Tim has the gun drawn on his father. And again, at the 11th hour, both parents have this moment of kind of the rational consciousness coming back to the fore. In Alan's case, it's because it's worse. Because the mirror lets him go because it's worse. Like, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, what have I done? Oh, well. It's either the mirror messing with them, letting them go, or it's a love conquers all motif. They're still themselves in there somewhere, and they struggle their way out to try to do the right thing in this moment for their kids. In that moment. Given everything else in this movie, I'm going with it's worse. Yep. So Alan points the gun at himself while Tim's holding it, reaches up, 
puts his hand near the, the trigger and just says run. And then Alan pushes the trigger and he is, his body is flung backwards into the mirror, cracking it. That little corner crack we saw in the beginning of the film. One time they heard it, which is funny considering it doesn't seem to have actually affected it on any level nope. on its ability to do anything to anyone. So it doesn't even growl or get upset after it happens. It like it, It's like it didn't notice. Worth noting that the finale we're about to get to in the script, it notes that that also creates a crack in the mirror. There's two at the end in, in the original script. Oh, clever. I like that. Huh. So like it literally recreated the moment and hurt itself again. It's interesting. That's worse because <laughs> that implies it knew that going through the segment again was going to hurt it, but it didn't yep. care. It was more important to screw with these kids. Yep. <laughs> Do it anyway. <laughs> That comes back to the, the shark motif. It's like you know, self-damaging. Who could this up? Feed. <laughs> this is how I feed. So now we've relived the moment that put Tim in you know the mental asylum, essentially, at the opening of the film. So with that, he now is basically catapulted forward strictly to present day Tim, who decides, all right, fuck this. I'm putting an end to it. Makes a beeline for the office and decides he's going to flip the kill switch. In the meantime, past president Kaylee, still holding the golf club, is in the office as well, and hears her mother's voice. Turns around, sees her mother, Marie, in the glass, and lovely image of her holding her arms out where it distends physics a bit, and you can see her yes. arms come out from the glass even though the rest of her is essentially two-dimensional. Yes. And, Mom, is that you? Mom's just pulling a Dick Van Patten from Spaceballs. Would I lie? goes up and Kaylee gives her mom a big hug. This is where I have a note. This is just Jesus fucking Christ. This is so cruel. <laughs> it's so awful. My note is just God. The end is rough. <laughs> where this is where Tim says, basically tells the mayor, "Fuck you," and hits the kill switch. And the mayor said, "No, no, no. Fuck uh, you." And then the mirror doesn't kill him because it's worse. <laughs> Tim hits the kill switch. The anchor comes down. And this is another thing where they play with sound because instead of hearing a shrill, it's a reverse of the apple bit. The optimistic one would be, I'm going to hear a wet crunch because it's her biting into an apple. Instead, yep. you get a shrill crack of glass. This is the reverse. You're hoping for a shrill glass shatter. Instead, you get a very wet thump. Yep. As this anchor has plunged into the back of her head. It takes her a bit to go out, too. Like, yeah. there is an extended sequence. Of Tim looking at her and enough that they could flash back to Kaylee telling him, you know, hey, remember our promise. And present day Tim like, ah, uh, about that. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, that's how big of a dick this mirror is. It sets Tim up to take a fall twice. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. This mirror hates Tim. It almost seems to set it up for like 20 years later. Tim comes back to screw with it again. You know, this time I'm going to remember this time. I'm going to take you down. I'm going to do this for her. And it's basically just the first movie all over again, because, you know, <laughs> you can't win. <laughs> it ends with the police dragging Tim out while he's screaming. It wasn't me. It was the mirror, you know, like Skinner on the Simpsons. It's not me. It's the butterfly. It's so heart wrenching. Yeah, he's so emotional over it. And everything's just lit by the red and blue police lights. He gets in the vehicle. The younger Tim sees the parents in the mirror, in the window. And then the older Tim sees the parents and Kaylee in the window. Oh. Well, now they can give her away at the ghost wedding. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> we got you both. We can still do this. Yeah. We have all the witnesses. <laughs> yep. And even better, no kids. And no pets. <laughs> yeah, well, there might be pets. Might be a lot of pets in the side of that mirror. Could be plenty of dogs in there. Could be the mirror just likes dogs. I feel like 
it eats the life force of dogs because dogs have a life force. It keeps people because they have souls. Except it eats dogs' bodies and it keeps people's, you know, sides but leaves their body. I don't know. It plays a lot on that mirrored eye bit, you know, the eyes of the mirror to the, or the windows to the soul. The souls of these entities are taken but are, are inherently the mirror at all times. So mm. it's, it's, it's well done. I love it. Yep. You know, it's, what's even worse when you think about it is Miguel Sandoval. He's out of a job. let me get this straight the dude you spent 11 years working with this guy to get him a position where him having a vision of himself holding a gun and pulling a trigger is a positive step forward and the then dude kills his own sister in an elaborate death trap (laughs) two days after getting out needlessly elaborate death trap (laughs) 48 hours after his release yeah, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> now his job is disgraced psychiatrist Miguel Sandoval. Yes. What's well, funny because the, the movie that there's a deleted scene with a coda, which is in the script as well, which is Warren, the guy who works with the, the Demon Agency, who's brought in at the end to repair the mirror <laughs> after it's been brought back in after this, and they're telling him, you know, yeah, the buyer needs it fixed up quick. Warren takes a look at it and say, all right, yeah, yeah, we'll get you fixed up. And as he dips out of frame, we see there's ghost Kaylee behind him with the mirror, the Superman three eyes and all that. And then it crashes to black. Hey, I'm glad they lost that code anyway. I think it's just much more heartbreaking ending on the police. Yes. But two, for what you were just mentioning, yeah, it should have just been Miguel Sandoval, who's like, yeah, I'm out of a job as a doctor. I'm fixing mirrors now. Fuck it. (laughs) Comes in in his fucking jumpsuit. That's the sequel is Miguel Sandoval going after the mirror. Yes. You took my job, fucker. (laughs) (laughs) I lost everything because of you. And, you know, he's going to do it right. He's going to, I'm going to find the mirror. How are you going to take it out with a rocket launcher from a thousand yards? <laughs> Sniper fire. How are you going to take it out? No problem. I'm going to pull up Yelp. I'm going to look for moving companies and go for the lowest rated one. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Butterfingers Moving Company. Yeah. I, uh, You're high. I need you to just move one piece of equipment for me. So you want to put in the 50 bucks for the extra padding? No. <laughs> <laughs> Call up one of them student moving companies, but give them the six pack up front. Yes. <laughs> the irony of this is when Kaylee and Tim are first bringing the mirror in, and it's actually covered in padding. And filming of that, it was a foam mirror in the center, and when they put it up against the wall, it broke because <gasps> the weight of the cushion was enough that the foam broke. So when you see that edit. If you look, you can see it start to give because so yeah. it actually broke in the filming of it. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. One thing I mentioned before we get into final thoughts, there was one bit that was excised from the script, which I'll mention, which is towards the ending, there's a sequence when Kaylee escapes from the second floor of the house, falls to the outside, and then she ends Oof. up going back in. Yeah. As she goes back in, she takes a quick glimpse into the office and she sees Michael, her fiance, who's now sitting there with the Superman three eyes and is looking at her. And they have this dialogue-free exchange where they just look at each other. He smiles and she walks away. In the script, there was a little bit of dialogue, which was this. It's so script direction. She turns. Elliot stands there. Silver eyes reflecting the soft blue light of her battery-powered lantern. Neck and chest soaked with blood. Big grin. Kaylee steals herself. Kaylee. Same old tricks, isn't it? Elliot. Oh, I should, I should mention also with his name. In the script, he was named Elliot. In the finished film, he's called Michael. Don't know what the reason for the change was, but... It's because he knew Elliot from E.T. was going to be in all the rest of his That's movies. what I first saw, too. Was <laughs> <laughs> Elliot steps forward, blood dripping from the wound. Elliot, did you ever love me? 
Or was I just the means to your end? Did you love me at all before you killed me? Kaylee, I know it isn't you, because you'd never have to ask. And then she leaves. Nice. (laughs) Nice. That's so sweet. He already knew that he was just for a sham. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, that's Oculus. Yay. It's a terrific film. I love it. I've watched it four or five times now, and it still it's it works me over every single time. It keeps getting better yep. every time I see it. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the rare movies that's scarier the second time. Yes. You know everything that's going to happen, but you're also aware the second time through really of how powerful and what the mirror is doing. Yes. And when you start to see it, it's like, oh, man, they never had a chance. <laughs> Not I thought a chance. they had a chance, but they never had a chance. Nope. The mirror told them right up front, you're dead. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's it's- you're just waiting to see how they die at this point. Yeah. 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 It's more of a surprise that Tim survives. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Two things I think of is a, it's such an interesting, if you look at the Oculus short, then absentia than this, mm-hmm. it's such a, again, we talk about how much we like Mike Flanagan on this pod. Mike Flanagan. We, Mike Flanagan. Yeah. We dang his name to bye bye birdie for Christ's sake. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, It's such a assured progression when you see someone doing these amateur films where he's kind of learning the ropes. And this is his first big budget, five million, but like Blumhouse budget studio picture. And it's so assured. It's so deft in both its writing and its instruction, you know, which Jeff Howard co-wrote. And but in its editing, it's just it's such a assured first step in studio filmmaking. That it, it honestly took me aback going back. I remembered really, really liking it. Going back and seeing it now after several years, I'm even more impressed with it. And I liked it even more the, than the first time I saw it. And the second thing, something we've kind of touched on a bit before is this movie is an interesting example of like we talked about with nihilistic horror, which is a barrier for entry for some people with horror movies, which is, well, I can't get into horror movies because I just know it's going to end poorly for people, which isn't always the case. But generally speaking, with most horror movies, yeah, it's it's going to be just stay away from found yeah. footage. Yeah. More <laughs> often than not, it doesn't turn out well. It's the whole shtick. <laughs> and that's something kind of like what we've been talking about with Nick, which a lot of it is that, you know, you hit a point in this movie where it's they're just fucked. Yeah, is they, they are just fucked. The question then is for you as a viewer is, all right, are you able to enjoy this? knowing that it's not going to end well. It is their 99.9% chance it's not going to end well. And this movie is such a, I'm fine with nihilistic horror in general, but this movie is such a great example of, look, if you just write characters well, yep, which is Mike Flanagan's whole stick is the deft attention to characterization. If you construct things in an interesting manner and just put the pieces together, who gives a shit how it turns out? If you yep. make the ride entertaining enough, let alone the fact that the payoff for this feels so pitch perfect for everything that was established. I came away so much more impressed with it than I was expecting. Just again, I liked it so much more than I did the first time. You're absolutely right. Cause a lot of times in horror, you can really feel that people aren't wedded to the movie. They're like, I'm making a horror movie to make money. And so I need this kill scene, this kill scene, this kill scene. And this is how we connect them. And nothing else matters, but the production value and we're going to get X number of people to show up and make some money. But every film Flanagan does, there's such an attention to the relationships and the people and the lives. Like He fleshes out these people. You feel like these are real people who 
given this supernatural situation would potentially react this way, whether for the good reason or not, but it's natural to who they are. It all flows. It's organic. It's alive. Mm -hmm. And that makes it so much more rewarding in general, regardless of how it ends. Because you're absolutely right. It's the journey, not the ending with these films. Yeah. And I, I think you're exactly right. And it's very clear why, if you listen to our podcast, it's pretty easy to spot who our favorite directors and films are. It's essentially Flanagan and Benson and Moorhead. And it's for the exact, the through line between them is the great characters in these stories. They understand the concept of the story and how they want to tell the stories, but they also understand how vital and important it is that you have characters that you want to spend time with. Like, I love the characters in Oculus. It's an interesting dynamic. The family, I mean, it's scary and it's awful, but you care about these characters pretty quickly. Yep. And that's, you know, we're repeating ourselves here, but that's absolutely Flanagan's specialty. That's what Hill House is. Hill House is the story of a family and you care about that family more than the ghosts. Yep. And then when the ghosts show up, it fucks you up because you were so invested in these characters. Bly, same thing. Oh, yeah. All of them. You know, and, and again, that's always going to be the through line in all of the stuff that we love. It's we've mentioned hereditary. That's a big part of hereditary is how that family unit functions or, you know, all these good movies that we love. The characters are so important. And that's something that Flanagan understands so deeply and so perfectly that we'll follow him anywhere, of course. And we have this is the only of his movies we hadn't reviewed yet. And we'll we'll eventually do Hill House and Bly and anything else he does really so yeah we love I, I just i love this movie <laughs> he's our favorite human there we go favorite human. <laughs> got jake to say it <laughs> but it's true you know again like flanagan benson moorhead all, all these folks that understand the character portion of this that make such gripping and entertaining films than the ones that are just paint by numbers horror so i yeah i, lo I love it i love oculus if I never see the fucking apple sequence again, it'll be fine. Oh, <laughs> oh. Never, ever. But so brutal. Quick note on that, because I said I would circle back to the remake. So there is the 2017 Indian remake of this movie called Dobara See Your Evil. Mentioned most of the important bits already. It's largely beat for beat. It's not as good as Oculus. It's not bad. It takes a lot of these beat for beat things, and it just has kind of a, a bit of a more generic execution feel to it. But it's not bad. But the things that are interesting was, first off, we mentioned the bit where they established the origin of the Lasser Glass. Second, they cast an actual brother and sister in the leads. Ooh. Huh. Oh, nice. Uh, which I thought was nifty. The main plot changes are, so in Oculus, there is the tertiary partner character of Michael, uh, Kaylee's fiance. There is no parallel for that character, but for the Tim parallel, he has a... Uh, not exactly a love interest, but his lawyer is a character and she's basically kind of a parallel story in a couple bits where she goes to his doctor and is like, I'm not sure he's ready to be let out yet. The doctor's <laughs> like, yeah, fuck it. It's fine. And <laughs> she's doing this thing where she's kind of in parallel trying to investigate things because she doesn't feel comfortable about whatever he's doing with his sister. So there's kind of a different avenue with that character. The father's profession in the remake is he's a sculptor and an artist. And as a result of that, he had models over to the house constantly. So that's how they gave kind of an explanation to always seeing 
this mystery woman who was in the house, which is what dad had, you know, half naked women going around the house all the time because that's what he did for for a job. And that's how they explain that bit away. The movie is much more focused on the father's seduction with the mirror. Like there's basically if you took Oculus and you made it about 20 percent Rory Cochran talking to Kate Siegel, that would be this. There's a lot of him just having like these dialogue exchanges and flirtatious moments with this apparition of the mirror. Most of the graphic bits are largely excised. The fingernail bit's not in there. Oh, good. The mother, when she's shackled, she's not wounded. She's just chained to the wall. But the light bulb and the apple bit is still in. Oh, God damn it. Of course it is. <laughs> it was in the trailer. It's, it's signature. Ugh. We gotta. And the only other bit worth mentioning is there is a coda at the end of it, just like there was a coda originally at the end of this movie, except the coda of this one is the lawyer visiting the Tim Parallel in prison after he's been arrested for this. And so, Hi, I'm just coming to visit you. And he instantly breaks down. You have to destroy the mirror and just freaks wow. out. Nice. And then it's a last shot of him just like scrawling shit. I think he's the image was a little shaky, but I think he's like scrawling an image of the mirror on the wall of his cell, I think, is the final Ooh. image. Huh. Largely B for B, but a couple of interesting tweaks that I thought would be fun to talk about. Shasib, you dug it? I, I still, yeah, and I am ish. in proper, yeah, ish. I'm over the fact that it was not an escape room horror. Um, that's fine. I am, it's a no escape room horror. Right, exactly. Ah. It, it ends up being that if they never actually let us out when we don't get through the puzzle. I still love it. I am so pleased with the acting. Obviously, two of my favorite people are in it. If I had to pick celebrities that I give a shit about. So I like gore in my horror. Fair. But, Body horror is very popular. But <laughs> stepping on things and eating things are two those things that enter the body. And we talked about that ages ago once. I can't. I just, I can't. If you're going to be disemboweled, fine, be disemboweled. But once you start ingesting things or things are piercing, I, I have, that's where we have problems. So this was good. Probably don't watch when Swallow. We Swallow. Yeah, Jake said it. <laughs> Fred just watched that one, and he told me to leave the back room. <laughs> so I was well warned. Uh, I think I was making an espresso or something in the kitchen, which is right next to the subwoofer. And he said, you need to go. So I did. It's funny you say all that, because I see that motif with a lot of people where it's they like horror and they like giant boulder falls on a guy or yes. a monster eats someone but but the things you can too closely relate to uh-huh the things that you have stepped on something you have stabbed yourself with something you have accidentally eaten something that maybe you shouldn't have uh-huh it hits that visceral lizard brain portion of your body it's like no 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 not that again nope <laughs> nope I know how I stab myself every day when I'm sewing. I'm, I, you know, I've got good calluses on this hand, but the other one's fair game. So yeah, I, I absolutely loved every minute of it. Even at the fourth time I was watching, I was still yelling, please don't, please don't go in there. And I know they're going in there because I just watched the same scene to make sure that I didn't see something in the background that I thought I saw. Oof. And I still yell at them. Yep. I yelled at them every time. They are the dumbest children I've ever met. But also, <laughs> but it's not their fault. Right. They have agency. They are trying to have an effect. Like I said, Amy Pond is Amy Ponding all over the place. And I love every second of her in this yes mm-hmm. aside from the fact that she is choosing to make the bad choices just because she needs to she needs to be right and you know we all want to be right and i get that i identify with that yeah yeah more on that to what you said you're right it's her hubris 
that causes them their downfall. I don't feel this movie has a too stupid to live moment. No. I don't think there's any moment where it's like, no, this is clear as day. What the hell are you doing? But it's her pride and her need for vindication that definitely puts them into a trap they can't escape. Her too stupid to live moment is when she's in the basement with the mirror and she's like, yeah, wrap it up and send it home. <laughs> My car is parked out back. Like, no, don't, don't. <laughs> well we're certainly glad you enjoyed the film and more glad you came on and wasted multiple hours of a saturday yes. evening talking about this movie with us love hanging out i'm with you. so so glad we finally got you on the pod thank you so much for doing this thank you for having me this was the highlight of my week thank you so thanks good. for coming on shasta yeah if you want to see shasta's cosplay work you can find her at instagram.com slash sci-fi chi <laughs> Instagram.com slash sci-fi chi girl. Chi girl. Chi girl. <laughs> now I'm changing This it. all stays in. Keep it. Instagram.com slash S-C-I-F-I-C-H-E-E-R-G-I-R-L. That's how late this is. <laughs> sci-fi chi girl. She's on Instagram. Check her Twitter. <laughs> yeah, so it's Instagram.com slash sci-fi cheer girl. And also find her website. At, yeah, I'm just keeping all this in. You're sober, too. <laughs> <laughs> you can also find her blog site at greenlinenshirt.com. Hey, I could say that one. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on and doing this pod. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Number one podcast. Woo. Yay. So yeah, I guess that'll be me signing off. So uh, all right. I'm going to really roll the dice here and try and plug our Instagram, which is instagram.com slash scary stuff podcast. Oh, I made it through. That's Griska podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So first the neural plug and then the uh, the Klingon plug there. I like it. Now do the Twitter. <laughs> and twitter.com slash scary stuff pod. So yeah, uh, this is Eric signing off. Thank you so much for listening. This is Nick Leamy saying, I've seen my demons. And they are many. Uh, and this is Jake saying, remember kids, revenge, not vindication, revenge. <laughs> and this is Shasta signing off with a poor dog. Aww. <laughs> Good night, folks. Night, everybody. Good night. Hi. Shit. <laughs>